All right, all right. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Gospel Truth. I'm your host, Marlon Wilson, and we have another great show for you. Uh, we have a two-on-two debate uh, today, and I'm excited for this one. I have Mayor Kaiser, Tony Nash, Dominique, uh, Mr. Enright, and I have Bo Hornick, and we are excited to be here, and we are going to have a fantastic two-on-two debate. And once again, thank you for joining me. As always, I do want to encourage you to subscribe to the Gospel Truth. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you don't miss out on any shows or any debates, any interviews that are coming up here in the future. So make sure that you subscribe. And if you are already subscribed, you've seen I've been uploading crazy, a bunch of crazy debates, a bunch of debates, like crazy, should I say. And so you know that a whole bunch of shows are coming up here in the future. And so you don't want to miss out if you're new to this channel. Also, uh, if you're yet to do so, go ahead and flow over to the other social media platforms like uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and support the ministry what a subscribe or follow over there on those platforms as well because once again you don't want to miss out on any shows or any little videos i put out on tiktok i typically do like little one or two minute clips uh of just refuting an argument or dealing with something in the culture whatever it is but if you want to be in tune there go ahead and subscribe on those platforms also all this content is on podcast so don't hesitate to flow over to the podcast itunes google play stitcher spotify so make sure you are flowing over there as well all right all right that's said i do have a bunch of shows that are coming up here in the future that i do want you to be aware of all right all right first up uh we got a highly anticipated debate between uh, anthony rogers and ha- uh, sarah from hamilton uh justification by faith alone so i hope you look forward to this one because i am so i think this is going to be a great debate after that, I have uh, Jason, Dr. Jason Lyle and J- Dr. Marcus Ross, who's going to, they're going to be joining me, and they're going to be taking your questions concerning young earth creation. So whether you disagree with young earth creation or you affirm young earth creation, uh, you're welcome to this show. So make sure that if you get your questions geared up, because these two are some of the leading voices in this area of young earth creation. So make sure you are looking forward to this one. After that, I have another two on two debate. I have um, unit, a couple Unitarians, a couple Trinitarians going at it. Uh, Jesus is Yahweh. So make sure that you are looking forward to this debate. And then lastly, I have an uh, eschatology debate. Nick Sayers versus Jonathan uh, Singleton, pre-wrath, pre-wrath rapture. All right, they're going to be debating is the pre-wrath rapture biblical. So I hope you guys are looking forward to all the debates because uh, I am. Uh, so make sure that you are jumping on the gospel truth. And the only way you can stay in lock and key with it is if you subscribe. So make sure you do that and don't miss out on any of the shows that are coming up here in the future. All right. Uh, so we once again, we have a two on two debate and I got to give big ups to old Mr. Will Hess. Uh, Will Hess actually connected me with Dominique and uh, Oboe. So uh, I'm glad that he was so nice to help a brother out. You know, sometimes these, uh, these, uh, the, the, the old open theists are hard to find sometimes, you know, so he was able to help me out and I appreciate it. Appreciate the help. And I have Mr. Mayor Kaiser and Tony Nash, Tony Nash and Mayor Kaiser has actually been on before and they actually already participated in the 202 debate and, uh, they did all right. You know, I'm just going to give them a, a little eye. Right. They did all right. You know, no, they did great, man. They did great, but I'm glad these guys are back again. And so let me bring these guys in to uh introduce yourself what's up fellas how y'all doing doing well how are you guys 
Good, good. Glad you guys jumped on here. Glad you guys joined me and I am excited for this one. And so before we do this, uh, I think you wanted a picture to be shown, uh, Merrick. Is that right? Yeah, pull up the photo. I just want to introduce myself and just say uh, I'm really grateful to be here. And uh, this is a photo of Dominic and I a couple of weeks ago in Kansas. And I think there's a photo of somewhere like a group photo of Bo and I together and so this coming at this from a place of love and uh iron sharpening iron and uh definitely a lot of respect for these guys so yeah all right all right ain't that the way it's supposed to be man that's what it, that's what it's all about man you ain't supposed to be on here just destroying your opponent man you supposed to be destroying them out of love not just destroying them simple no? <laughs> i'm joking i'm joking guys i know you guys have a great debate but once again i'm gonna allow you guys to introduce yourselves to the audience man somebody out there don't know you somebody don't know what you do so uh this is your opportunity to let them know what youtube channel you're on websites blogs whatever you do it's your opportunity to let them know so they can come check you out all right all right start with american tony why don't you guys go ahead and give a quick introduction yourself man all right um <clears throat> my name is tony nash um just kind of like a humble christian guy i do a little bit of work with a youtube channel called lutheran scholastics um but other than that i'm just thankful to be here thank you marlon and uh thank you bone dominic for being here yeah thanks uh my name is merrick i have a youtube channel with uh street evangelism videos uh some anti-abortion stuff if you ever want to talk, I'm on Facebook, and you can always reach me there. Uh, I'm uh, just a Christian here in Indiana, so love the Lord, firmly Protestant, and grateful. Yeah. All right, all right. Thank you, guys. All right, Dominique and Mr. Bo, you guys are up. Go ahead, give a quick introduction to yourself. Hi. Yeah, yeah I am uh, a my name is... Christian. <laughs> okay, Bo, after you. Go for it, Bo. Okay, yeah, no, I'll go first. I'm a, I'll start first. I'm a Christian. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I have a beautiful wife, Natalie, and an awesome child, Phineas Watchman Hornet. And so that's basically me. I did a little bit of, uh, I still do a lot of pro-life abolition work. Uh, we go outside of the clinic as much as we can. Um, obviously, with it a busy life, it's difficult to get out there a lot. But um, that's basically a little bit of what we're doing currently and what we plan to do in the future. Yeah, I'm Dominic Enyar. I am a Christian conservative talk show host. I'm Denver's youngest, I believe. Not of all time, but currently I'm on AM670. I have a very small, humble YouTube channel, The Dominic Enyar Show. So yeah, just Christian conservative, pro-life, abortion, abolition. So yeah. All right. All right. Thank you guys once again for joining me. And we are going to jump into this debate. No need to hold the audience at bay. Let them hear it. Let them hear the arguments. So we're going to, once again, the topic of this debate is, does the Bible teach the future is eternally settled? Uh, Merrick and Tony are arguing the, the, the affirmative in this debate. Dominique and Bo are arguing the negative. And we're going to start that off with 15-minute opening statements. It's going to be followed by seven-minute rebuttals. And then we're going to have a 40-minute cross-sex for both parties. We'll get, uh, well, yeah, two, both teams. Teams will get 20 minutes each to cross-examine their opponents. Uh, then we're going to follow that with uh, five-minute closings and then Q&A from the audience. 30-minute uh, Q&A. Sounds good? Yep. Great. All right. Mr. Tony Nash and uh, Merrick, you guys are up first. And so I will start your time when you guys begin to speak. Excellent. Thanks so much. So thanks, Marlon. Thanks, Dominic and Bo. We hope tonight will be fruitful, and it's, re it's a really important debate. It'll be concerning the, the very nature of God himself. 
So we hope it's enlightening, uplifting, and it brings us closer to the truth as revealed in sacred scripture. So the topic is, does the Bible teach that the future is eternally settled? And Tony and I will be arguing the affirmative, hence why we're going first. Our intention in tonight's debate is not necessarily to define how God knows everything in the future. We only affirm that God does, in fact, possess perfect, exhaustive foreknowledge. As such, for tonight's debate, we are willing to defend many possible theories for grounding how God knows the future perfectly. You know, determinism, Molinism, simple foreknowledge, whatever. We intend to demonstrate that the Bible teaches that God possesses this knowledge, albeit without getting exactly into how and in what particular ways this is the case, or exactly how the future is eternally settled with some of the philosophical things we're not going to focus on. We will argue that omniscience entails an exhaustive knowledge of the past, present, and future. Indeed, all things, possible and actual, are perfectly known by God. We will defend this position in contrast to the open theist view, which argues that God is not truly omniscient, at least not in the classical sense. Indeed, many open theists argue that God cannot truly know the future as certain, but rather as a possibility. To begin, we'd like to lay the groundwork for the concept of omniscience in the scriptures, and then from that we'll demonstrate how the Bible lays out and sort of includes this knowledge in the future as well. First off, scripture explicitly teaches that God knows all things, John 21, 17, 1 John 3, 20. And lots of Bible citations, if you want the index, I wasn't able to make slides in time, just let me know. Uh, this entails God knowing our hearts, thoughts, intentions, and all things currently happening. Psalm 139, Hebrews 4, Job 24, a very familiar text, Ezekiel 11, right? God is intimately in control of all natural weather events. It is he that gave to the wind its weight, Job 28. And he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Glorious text, that's Psalm 50. No sparrows fall from the ground but from permission of the Father. Even you, dear listener, God has numbered all the hairs on your head, Matthew 10. These verses clearly entail that God, at the very least, possesses perfect, exhaustive knowledge of all things in the past and the present. Now, with this groundwork in place, we'd like to move from this towards our positive thesis that God does indeed know the future perfectly. And so we're going to have seven arguments. First, God is said to declare the end from the beginning. Truly, knowing all things entails knowing all possibilities and possible outcomes of this decree. This means he knows all consequences perfectly by creating this world. The scripture affirms this view in Isaiah 46.10. God alone can tell us what will happen before it happens, Isaiah 42.9. He contrasts that the, the nature of the false gods in Isaiah, that only he can exhaustively predict the future. That's in Isaiah 41. God determines and knows all of our days in our last breath, again in Job and the Psalms. God also knows the day and the hour in which Christ will return, that famous text in Matthew 24. As such, these passages clearly show the future does indeed exist, at least in the mind of God. Second argument, God himself declares particular instances of his exhaustive foreknowledge in the scriptures. Here are a few instances. God foretells the existence of Josiah and the acts he will perform, 1 Kings 13. He describes what the Egyptian and Chaldean armies will do in the future, Jeremiah 37. In Daniel 11, God describes the future Antichrist, or man of lawlessness, also 2 Thessalonians 2. Indeed, Jesus predicts Peter's threefold denial in Matthew 26, as well as his repentance, see Luke 22. Third, general prophecy in Scripture lends to the idea that the future is known to God. Prophecies in the Scripture often detail the future. For the Holy Spirit is moving the authors, authors to say their prophetic word. 
God already knows how these events will play out in years advance. This proves the future is set. There are many examples of future tense prophecy in the Holy Writ. However, for debate purposes, we will narrow the field to human acts. Our opponents acknowledge that God himself is an actor in history. As such, we will focus on the future acts of human beings, thereby proving God knows future um, contingents. For instance, the suffering, the suffering servant foretold in Isaiah 53 is put to death. He is mocked. And, and this shows that God already knows how people will treat Christ, our Lord. We see another prophecy in Daniel 2.45 where Daniel interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. In this dream, specific details about future kingdoms are explicated. And yet, none of this is said as a probability or as a statement of falsifiable knowledge. Instead, Daniel himself says that this interpretation is certain because it comes from God's revelation. Fulfilled prophecies fill the New Testament as well. Jesus and the apostles point these out copiously in their sermons and writings. Our Lord claims that Isaiah prophesied the vain worship of the Pharisees, Matthew 15. Jesus predicts the, that Judas would betray him also, and he claims that Judas was, his betrayal was prophesied and thus must be fulfilled in see John 13. Peter also claims that the scriptures foretell the betrayal and replacement of Judas. Think of, you know, in Acts with Matthias and Justice. The prophecy, quote, had to be fulfilled, Acts 1. Jesus predicts also the destruction of the second temple, which happened in 70 AD. Fourth, in Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22, God gives a test for whether a prophet is genuinely from him or not. God tells us, and you're probably familiar with this text, that if a prophet claims to be of God and states that a prophecy which does not occur or come to pass, then we will know he was speaking presumptuously. Such a one is a false prophet. However, many open theists will argue that God has unequivocally stated things that failed to happen. If this is true, however, then God spoke with presumption and rashness, a false prophet by his own criteria. We hope our opponents will reject this conclusion. Okay, number five, another clear argument to show God does know the future is his knowledge of counterfactuals and the truth value of such hypothetical scenarios. We will deliver a few clear instances here. The first is in 1 Samuel 23 when David uses an ephod to determine certain events that may play out in the future. David then inquires with God through the use of this device about what the outcome would be if he would have remained in Kaliah and when God tells him what the men of Kaliah and Saul would do if he stayed and caused David to leave. Another passage showing that God knows the outcomes of different scenarios is Matthew 11, where Jesus says, if, if the mighty works done in Chorazin and Bethsaida happened in Tyre and Sidon, those people already would have repented. The argument from God having knowledge of counterfactuals to him having certainty of knowledge of the future is clear. If God can know what people would do in hypothetical scenarios that will not occur, then how much more would God know what they will do and what they would do in scenarios which will occur given that God knows all things presently. The future is eternally settled. Number six, our next set of arguments is from the Bible's teaching on predestination and foreknowledge, which sort of presupposes God having future knowledge of the future, right? Scripture declares that God has predestined or foreordained individuals to salvation, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, these hotly debated texts on soteriology, which we're not going to get into as well as events such as the crucifixion of Christ himself, Acts 2, Acts 4. We also have texts declaring that God has foreknowledge, meaning knowing things that will occur beforehand, such as God foreknowing who the elect are. 
We also take from the analogy of, of Romans 8.29 that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And also apply that right to Ephesians 1, showing that God foreknew individuals he would predestine before the foundation of the world, which demonstrates that this knowledge of the elect is not gained by God in time, but rather is prior even to the creation of the world. Similar lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? However, this cannot reconcile with the view of our opponents, which suggests, suggests that God can't have perfect knowledge of the fate of individuals unless acquired in time, or that these individuals would even exist. He wouldn't know. As on open theism, how could God infallibly know that people would freely choose to procreate, or to create these people, or that anyone would freely choose Jesus? Think of like the butterfly effect, just all these different variables. Also, we would cite another argument from Peter in 1 Peter 1.20, which it stated that Christ again was foreordained to be sent before the foundation of the world. The same language of foreordination used of Christ's sacrifice in light of human sin in Acts 2 and 4, which implies very clearly that God knew the sins that would be committed and who committed them in order to foreordain Christ's sacrifice for those sins that sinners sinners people. And Merrick, hold on, your audio is going bananas. It was like fuzzing out. Don't know what what that was all about. It? Yeah, it was going in and out. Hey, is, do is me a favor. Okay yeah, hold on. It's okay now. So if you want to continue, you can go ahead. Okay, okay. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. Likewise, the book of Revelation backs up this argument for it declares that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. And Paul declares that Christ came into the world to save sinners, meaning since Christ was predestined to come into the world and to be sacrificed for our sins, God must have infallible knowledge that sin would occur in this world due to the force of the phrase predestined. For if something is destined, it means that it cannot fail to occur by definition. Scripture also uses this term destined for God knowing those who would finally disobey his will as we see in 1 Peter 2.8, as well as Proverbs 16.4 and Romans 9, where God made some, some for glory and others for the day of wrath. If God, however, has infallible knowledge of who the elect are and also what sins would occur and that Jesus would redeem us from those sins, right, then God also knows of those who will finally disobey his word and then how the opponents of God would, like, contend. So how, how do the opponents in our debate how do they contend that god doesn't know the future um so kind of both ways are true if god knows one he must know the other seventh our, our final argument will be to lay out sort of the absurd biblical and dangerous implications of open theism especially even in in like the the practical life of the christian but of course our other essential dark doctrines and articles of faith found in the scriptures so if god doesn't truly know the future then how could Christ die for us personally if he didn't know that we would exist? How would he pay for the, our, our sins specifically, not knowing the sin that we would commit if the future is not eternally settled? Perhaps the open theist could object and say Christ did not make satisfaction for any specific sins or for people specifically, but only made satisfaction generally speaking and only people as a collective group. However, scripture at the very least seems to imply clearly that Christ's sacrifice was made to make satisfaction for our sins specifically. For Peter says that Christ bore our sins on the tree. And in Isaiah 53, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2. 
not that Christ bore sins in general as if sin is some abstract force, like some categorical thing, but that our sins were, were paid for. It, it denotes such a personal connection, meaning that Christ did go on that cross with us in mind, with our names written on his hands, and he knew that we would commit those heinous sins against him to make satisfaction for us. And so because of that, we can approach his throne of grace. And I appeal to you, listener, if you haven't done that, please repent and, and trust in Christ. And I'll pass over to Tony. All right. Thanks, Merrick. All right. So next, we'd like to move into our section of giving the groundwork of a proper hermeneutic to approach the passages of Scripture we provided, as well as a proper way to interpret the passages our opponents will give to prove their position and counter arguments. First, we, we, we would like to make aware to our listeners the distinction between didactic passages which are passages for the purpose of teaching instruction meant to tell us something specific about God or a certain doctrine, and narrative passages, statements made in quick succession, often left unexplained in detail, and are used in narrative settings to explain in simple terms what is transpiring. A few instances of a didactic passage versus narrative would be that one of defining sin, and narratives telling us someone sinned without really uh, commenting on if it was a sin or not. A clear example of this is on drunkenness, which we see in Proverbs 2.1 and Ephesians 5.18 talking about it as sin. These are didactic passages because they're explaining a particular topic and giving a definition on it. In this case, on why drunkenness is wrong and saying it's wrong. Now, a narrative passages, passage on drunkenness would be similar to Noah getting off the ark and getting drunk in Genesis 9.20-21. The narrative does not comment on if what Noah did was wrong, but just simply explains what happens. Now, it would be improper for someone to formulate a doctrine based off this narrative passage that getting drunk is permissible simply because Noah is called a righteous man, seeing how it directly contradicts in plain terms of more didactic passages on this matter. Since the purpose of the narrative isn't meant necessarily to explicate a doctrine, but is meant simply to explain from a human perspective what they perceive to have occurred, without getting into too much detail on their interpretation of the matter. This would be an extremely important distinction as we seek to prove our case over and against our opponent versus of God having foreknowledge over and above more didactic passages. Another instance of this is negative passages give more context to uh, positive passages, like the scripture saying God is love, uh, but negative passages give more context to that statement where God does not uh, save those who do not repent. As in Luke 13, it says, if you do not repent, you all likewise perish. So it gives more content and context to those positive statements as well. Another uh, uh, term we would like to use in helping us uh, interpret the Bible is the use of a phrase called anthropomorphism, which is uh, using uh, human-like characteristics to describe something. Uh, we think a clear instance in the Bible of using human-like characteristics to describe God would be human body parts, which we even think our opponents will admit. And so when we see right. negative didactic passages in Scripture saying, like, God does not change his mind like a man, like in Numbers or in 1 Samuel 15, this gives us the ground to interpret any passages which say he does change his mind as anthropomorphic. All right, Tony, thank you. Thank you guys so much for that. All right, uh, Mr. Bo and Dominique, you guys are up for you guys' uh, 15 minute opening. Let me pull you guys in. All right, uh, I will start the time as soon as you guys begin to speak. Awesome. Well, greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Today we're debating, does the Bible teach the future is eternally settled? 
So how do we figure out what the Bible teaches on the topic? There is no verse that explicitly talks about the metaphysics of the future, but we can find examples of the, the Bible talking about the, something in the future tense, saying it will be this particular way. And then later on, the Bible also says it will no longer be that particular way. There are three options to this debate. Number one, you believe that nothing about the future is predetermined. Number two, you believe there are some things about the future that are predetermined. Number three, you believe that every single thing about the future is predetermined. R.C. Sproul said, quote, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then there is not the slightest confidence you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass. Now, I love R.C. Sproul, but I think that's very silly. God is not so frail as to be broken by a single molecule. Regardless, I asked our opponents before the debate, and they agreed with this quote. There is not a single maverick molecule. The point being, our opponents tonight hold the third belief. Every single thing about the future is settled. Bo and I hold the second belief that some things about the future are settled. Imagine, if you will, that we are debating if there are only red cars in the world or if there are some blue cars as well. If our opponents point to a red car, we will say, great, yeah, that's a red car, but a single red car does not disprove the existence of any blue cars. So too, if our opponents tonight point to a single event in the future that was predetermined, that does not disprove the existence of unsettled events. Today, we are in search of a single maverick molecule, and if we can find a single maverick molecule, we win the debate. To find a single maverick molecule, we're going to be taking a look at two key passages. First, Jeremiah chapter 18, where God teaches us that the future is changeable. He gives us a flowchart of sorts as to how the future might be changed. He says, if there is an evil nation and I intend to destroy them, if they repent and become good, that will change what would have otherwise been the future and I will not destroy them. He also says, if there is a good nation and I want to bless them, if they repent and become evil, that will change what would have otherwise been the future. So God lays out this flow chart in Jeremiah 18. Let's read this. This is Jeremiah speaking. I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to build it and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will repent concerning the good with which I said. I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. So this principle is laid out, but that's not all. We also get to see an example of this in action. Not only do we get that chart, but we also get flow. This was recorded in the book of Jonah. The people of Nineveh were exceedingly wicked. Because of this, God said Nineveh was going to be destroyed in 40 days. That was set as the future. However, the people of Nineveh repented. This changed what would have otherwise been the future. Let's read this from Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city, and on the first day's walk, he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Skipping ahead a little bit to where the king of Nineveh says, Cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In the next chapter, Jonah is praying to God and says, For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who repents from doing harm. So again, if we are debating, are there only red cars in the world? This would be an example of a blue car. This is an unsettled event. This is the Bible talking about Nineveh in the future tense saying, it will be this particular way. It will be destroyed in 40 days. Then the Bible teaches it will no longer be that particular way. The city will not be destroyed. 41 days later, the city still stands. And these two biblical passages, Jeremiah 18 and Jonah 3, they are linked together beautifully. And they clearly teach that the entire future is not, nor was it ever, eternally settled. We set out trying to find maverick molecules, but we find entire maverick nations. Awesome. Looks like I got nine minutes and 45 seconds. So I'll slow down my seven-minute opening statement. Um, but to continue that line of argumentation that Dominic has started, I'll be demonstrating that there are many blue cars in the Bible that come in many different shapes and sizes. My first example of a blue car would be found in Jeremiah 26. The Bible indicates that the future is not eternally settled. In Jeremiah 26, we see two very important theological truths about how God interacts with his creation. This passage directly follows the contingency agreement set forth in Jeremiah 18. However, this story goes into detail and displays more information that isn't revealed in chapter 18. In verse three, we see that God gives the possible outcomes of Jeremiah's prophesying. It may be that they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way, that I may relent to the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. The first outcome is what God is intending to do at the present time. God says, I intend to do, and that's judgment. God has told the people that they will be judged in verse four through six, if they continue in their sin. But in verse six, he says, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I'll make the city a curse for all the nations of the earth. However, a second option is offered based on the contingency that they repent. God specifically uses phrases such as they may and I may. With this information, we can decipher that God has predetermined to judge them and he fully intends to do so. God tells us that he predetermines to judge them because he says, I intend to do something. If God says he intends to do something, we better believe he intends to do it. However, he is willing to repent if they repent, just like the flow chart that is laid out in Jeremiah 18. When Jeremiah prophesies judgment to the people, they take him and attempt to give him the death penalty. It is only after Jeremiah mentions the contingency that they repent of their ways. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord, and the Lord will repent of the disaster that is pronounced against you. Verse 13. 
What is noteworthy is that in verse 19 of Jeremiah 26, the elders understood that God is willing to repent and they pre of the predetermined intended judgment if they repent of their sins. They even mention a historical event in which God has done this before. They say in verse 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he pronounced against them? But we are going to bring disaster upon ourselves. Even the elders of this time understood that God was not being anthropomorphic and making stuff up or eliciting a response. They understood through past history events and what Jeremiah was conveying that if they stopped their evil, God would repent of the intention that he has to do. And God offering two options and staying true to repenting of the first option, it can be determined that the future event could not have been eternally settled. Therefore, we have found just one other blue car. And just to recap, if there's millions of red cars, we, we agree that things are predetermined. But if there's one blue car, this debate is over. One blue car shows that not everything is eternally uh, predetermined. The second topic I want to bring up is actions and prayers change what would have otherwise been the future. In a, a popular story that arises when speaking of God relenting his judgment is Exodus 32. In this story, God tells Moses, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. And I will make a great nation out of you. Verse 10. But, Moses, but because of Moses' prayer, God repents of his previous statement. Throughout history, many theologians have come up with various explanations for this text. However, my main point in bringing the story up is to point out that in Psalms 106, this story is actually recapped. And it is there that we found uh, one more important truth. Psalms 106.23 says, Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before them to turn away his wrath from destroying them. A popular explanation of the story is that God truly didn't intend to destroy Israel. And our opponents would most likely agree with that. I don't know what their view on that is, but a lot of Calvinists would agree God didn't really intend to because it didn't happen that way. But, but God, that God said he would just do it so that Moses would intercede on their behalf. However, Psalms 106 brings to light the fact that God truly did intend to destroy them and would have Moses and would have had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach. If God tells us that XYZ would have happened if ABC did not happen, then we can determine that God's intentions change due to the second event. And therefore, the first stated intention was not eternally settled. If Moses never stood in the breach, would Israel have been destroyed? The Bible tells us yes. If God's true intentions are changed, the future cannot be eternally settled. Once again, there are predetermined events in the Bible. When they're predetermined, we don't know. But this one was predetermined. God told us what he was going to do, and it changed. If anything ever changes, therefore, it's just another blue car in our example of the red car, blue car. The last, final and last and final category that I would like to bring up uh, to speak about is the fact that the Bible indicates that some past and present events could have had an alternative ending. The example of this happening that I would like to speak of is in 1 Samuel 13, 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly and you have not kept the command of the Lord your God. 
with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out another man that seeks after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In this story, Saul has been established as king over Israel. And due to Saul's blatant disobedience to God's word, God regrets making Saul king over Israel and cuts him off. It is Saul's disobedience that lands him in trouble with the Lord. The main point of the passage above is that God states to Saul that if he would have obeyed, he would have been king over Israel forever. But because he disobeyed, he has been cut off. If something would have happened, then we know that there was an alternative ending to the story. God actually gives us the alternative ending to this story. For then the Lord would have established your king over Israel forever. If there is an alternative to the events, then that event could not have been eternally settled. And therefore, we have found yet another blue car in the Bible. There are other events in the Bible that could have had alternative endings. For example, when Jesus says in Matthew 26, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Is Jesus lying that he can't actually bring down 12 legions of angels? Or is it the truth that he could do this and the future could have had an alternative? And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, none of the rulers of this age, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul in a didactic text is bringing up the fact that if the rulers, Pontius Pilate, had knowledge of who Jesus actually was, they would not have crucified him, demonstrating that there's an alternative reality that could have happened. However, the, the way that it happened, it, it happened that way. But if there's a demonstration of an alternative, there, it never was eternally settled. And I want to close with this. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous passages that tell us that God's plans have changed proving to us that not everything in the past, present, and future was eternally settled. This in no way undermines this in no way undermines God's abilities, but demonstrates to us that God is worthy to be praised for the same reason Jonah praises him, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah 4:2. In our spiritual walk, this principle should help us, just as it did the elders in Jeremiah's time. When they remembered that in the past, God relented his judgment. Because of this fact, they turned away from their sins and were not destroyed. Verse 19 of Jeremiah 26, again, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And, the, and did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we were about to bring disaster upon ourselves. God is full of mercy. And although there are some events in the Bible that are predetermined, that doesn't mean that every event is predetermined. Just like if there is one billion red cars in the world, that doesn't mean that every car is red. One blue car would demonstrate that every car is not red, just like we've demonstrated that not everything is predetermined. All right. Thank you so much, guys, for the opening statement. Now we're transitioning to the rebuttal rounds. And Merrick and Tony, you guys are back in the seat. So uh, once again, it's a seven-minute rebuttal. And I will start your time as soon as you guys begin to speak. Great. Thanks so much. So we'd like to thank our opponents for their thoughtful <clears throat> opening statement. 
so there's maverick molecules. Um, how about a maverick hair that falls from the head of one of God's children without his permission? Or like, how about a maverick mangled fetal image bearer that God won't repay justice for? In response to the car analogy, I would offer another more accurate one that Dan Chapa has shared. Imagine, if you will, that someone tells me, having never set foot in my house, the precise details, colors, sizes, etc. of the first 30 shirts in my closet. Now, would it be some great absurdity to suppose that he knows what the 31st one is? It must be noted before dealing with their proof text that in order for them to argue that God undergoes a literal change of mind, one of the two th one of two things must occur. First, either God goes back on an unconditional statement or he forgets about something he stated he would do in the past and is reminded of it. Both are absurd biblically, as this would make God Im immoral, so that in his mind we will... So it, with this in mind, we will offer a critique of, of some of these textual things. So in regards to Jeremiah 18, God interacts with his creatures in a meaningful way, in a real way. God is still in control of all the options, though. The judgment here against a nation is conditional. Let me respond to some of their like philosophical conclusions. I think it's still important, even though this isn't a philosophical debate. The conditions are based on human actions. Take two conditions, condition A, condition B. Depending on the change in the people and the conditions they meet, um, these things will change. But there's no notion of him changing at all. He's doing what he said he would do in either, either situation. So pouring out wrath does not produce a change in God, but in creatures. Uh, changing the will is categorically than willing the change of something external. When God wills something, his agency is not being changed. It does not become different from what it was before. Instead, the differences are not in agency itself, but only relatively in its like relation to things. So the change is in man, not in God. So we would say in Jeremiah 18, God establishes a general policy that if he proclaims judgment and people repent, he will repent or relent. Similarly, if he declares blessings and people do evil, he will take action. This shows that relenting is, in fact, part of God's general unchanging plan and part of the future, and at least back then, that was eternally settled. If I say that I'm going to punish you for stealing out of the cookie jar, but I will change my mind if you put it back, and the child puts it back, it's not some unforeseen change or rogue molecule or rogue nation, and in fact, no real change of mind at all, since the person is simply sticking to a stated intention and thus the denotation of the term change of mind in this context is more hyperbolic and allegorical in nature as it, it's, it's denoting that you will produce the effect similar to what the person who undergoes an actual change of mind. And so like he mentioned anthropomorphism. So like why talk of anthropomorphisms as if it was like some special um, Protestant like classical theist absurdity covered with this weird sounding term when literally any revelation conceivable must be anthropomorphic necessarily. If revelation of God was not anthropomorphic and anthropomorphic, you know, pathotic, um, the other option would be silence because who's the Bible written to? Uh, in Jeremiah 18, God promised uh, to spare a nation from destruction if they repented of their evil, which indicates that his declaration was based on a condition of unrepentance. Thus, it was, Thus not, it was not, not a conditional, conditional statement. No Merrick, you your audio again, Merrick. I think it's your audio. Oh, your audio is going. Can you hear me now? Bummer. Yeah, it keeps, uh, keeps going me? out. Interesting. Hmm. You want me to try to rejoin? I'm going to pause my timer here.
Yeah. How's that now? Yeah, sounds like you're good. Now, I'm not sure if it's your microphone that's rubbing against your headphone, your mic on your headphones, maybe, mm. is rubbing up against the mic you're speaking through and causing the fuzziness. Weird. Okay, so I, I do sound okay now? Yeah, you sound good now. Okay, I'll try to stay really uh, still. Started my timer here again. Um, right. uh, kind of lost where I was, but in regards to Nineveh, uh, I would say that it was not an unconditional statement that there was no literal change of mind as our opponents understand it. So that like God, by not destroying Nineveh in Jonah three is he's simply sticking with a previous stated intention and has no bearing on any idea of, you know, if, if it, on the idea of God knew if they would repent or not, even though Jonah was initially angry with God for seemingly doing the opposite of what he said he would do later in the story. God explains to Jonah that he is a God of mercy and he planned to show mercy to Nineveh all along. Jonah 4, uh, 10 through 11. This suggests that the purpose of the narrative was more to remind Jonah of God's mercy than to teach a doctrine about God not knowing the future. So let's go to Exodus 32. We would respond by saying that Moses appeals to God's promise, a promise he made to Abraham or to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about the prosperity of Israel, meaning God would not destroy it. So in order for the open theist argument to stand, not only must they argue that God changed his mind on an unconditional statement, but also that God forgot his own promise in order for God to literally change his mind. However, how could God forget his own promise when Moses doesn't? Especially since scripture declares he knows our very thoughts. I mean, think of God with, with Abraham and the doves and splitting him and putting him to sleep and all the, you know, it's firm, right? So they'll make an argument from this passage about how prayer changes God's will. However, this shows that it's impossible to have confidence in prayer rather than the opposite, uh, showing the entire point, the, the open theist point about prayer to be self-refuting. For scripture teaches we are to have confidence and no doubts in our prayer, Mark 11, James 1, right? Practical epistle stuff. But if God is not bound by his promises for his own sake, then there's plenty of room to doubt our prayers will be effective at all. Instead, prayer does not literally change the mind and will of God, but rather prayer is an instrument. An instrument that God uses to enact his will, his will be done, thy will be done in the world. Thus, through our prayers, God produces effects in the world similar to someone seemingly changing their will in accordance with the request. However, since God's will is that he has decreed to set up prayer as an instrument by which to bring about events in this world as he desires to work in and through with his creation, then the position of our opponents, their argument does not follow and God can know the perfect, the future perfectly on this basis. So God was angry with the Israelites, threatened to consume them, but at Moses' request, he turned away from his fierce wrath and spared them. Although God knew from eternity what he would do and how the situation would unfold, from the perspective of Moses and the reader, God presented one course of action and ultimately chose another. Full stop. That's not open theism. That doesn't do anything to go against the debate proposition or biblical Christianity or, or what we would hold to as as confessional Protestants. It's not denying that the future is settled. Uh, in regards to Jeremiah 26, the same critique can be offered that we gave to Jeremiah 28 in, in their interpretation of it. And so I'm sorry if my microphone cut out a little bit. Um, so again, I appreciate the, the rebuttal and I look forward to a, a good cross-examination. All right, thank you guys so much. All right, next up, uh, Mr. Bo and Dominique, you guys are up. Let me get you guys in here. If I can find you guys, there you go. All right, you guys are up for your seven minute rebuttal. 
and I will let me restart your time here at this time back to seven minutes yeah. all right you guys have it for seven minutes and I'll stop the time when you guys begin to speak Awesome. So to start, Merrick says God is not affected, but we see in Jeremiah 18 that God will not do that which he intends. This is a change in the mind of God. Also, Jonah 4 has nothing at all about this being the plan all along. Now, our opponents tonight, at the start of their opening statement, they completely abandoned the debate resolution. We are not debating, does God know the future? Both sides agree he does. We are instead debating, what is the future like? Is it settled or open? If Bo and I asked, does God know the future is unsettled? They would say no. Imagine if we then said, so you don't think God is all-knowing. That would obviously be unreasonable as we would be assuming our conclusion, yet that's exactly what our opponents are doing. Again, we're looking for any blue cars. We're looking for maverick molecules, and they are everywhere. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows the future as unsettled. He knows the future as changeable. He knows how the future is going to be changed, and that's the flowchart he lays out in Jeremiah 18. Then we see examples of that everywhere, like Nineveh, like Hezekiah, like Moses pleading with God, like Saul no longer being king, like Christ calling down a legion of angels. Each one of these is clearly unsettled. Now, our opponents pointed to Isaiah 46.10, where God is declaring the end from the beginning. Chapter 48 shows clearly the reason is so that all these stupid idol worshipers can't give credit to their idols when something big happens. This isn't a declaration made at the beginning of time, whatever that means, about time, whatever that means. These are declarations about specific time periods. Isaiah 42 says, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. These are new declarations. By the way, that word new, like a new car, that's the opposite of eternally old. When God says something is new, our opponents have to argue that means it was eternally old. As far as foreknowing future free will decisions, even we as humans are able to do that. I know my brother is going to talk with this debate, talk about this debate with me afterwards. Um, as far as prophecy goes, Bo and I have no problem with prophecy. God says people will hate try to kill Jesus. There are 7 billion sinners on this planet. The Father is more than capable of finding someone who hates Jesus and putting them together. God uses his vast power, wisdom, and might to bring about his will. But again, that does not disprove the existence of various unsettled events. Then about God knowing counterfactuals, and Bo is probably going to get mad at me for using my time on this, but uh, it's important, so we got to go through it. We're debating if the future is eternally settled. Our opponents quoted 1 Samuel 23, and let me read their proof text. So David asks, quote, will Saul come down as your servant has heard? And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will men of Kaliah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Kaliah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Kaliah, so he halted the expedition. So just to recap, the Lord said he will come down and they will deliver you. And then Saul did not come down and they did not deliver David. This is as clear of an example as you, about changing the future as you could ask for. You cannot get any more explicit. And our opponents are using this as an argument to say the future does not change. I love these guys, but they are twisting scripture. If your strongest proof texts teach the opposite of what you believe, that's not a good sign.
Now, for their sixth point, and I don't want to get into a huge debate about soteriology tonight, but they argue that God foreordained and foreknew which individuals were going to be saved. I take issue with that, but for the sake of this debate, I'm going to point out where believers who God intended to follow him forever were cut off. Aaron's sons, for example, in Deuteronomy 18, speaking of Aaron, quote, for the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. God wants his sons to serve him forever. But what happens? Leviticus 10, uh, then the sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. So God determined beforehand that Aaron's sons would serve him forever, but that did not happen, showing that event to be unsettled. Their seventh argument, Christ died for me specifically, me, 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 it's all about me. First John 2, 2 says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. That argument falls flat. Moving on uh, with in their opening statement, they talked about uh, didactic texts and narrative texts, and they talked about it in a way that they almost seem to contradict each other. They do not. Per our example, Jeremiah 18, the principal text, the didactic text to steal their term, teaches us how the future might be changed. And then in Jonah 3, with the story of Nineveh, we see the narrative text, and those two work together. They work together with such beautiful synergy. The didactic text is Jeremiah 18, seven through eight. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. So that's the didactic. And then the narrative text is Jonah 3.10. Then God saw their works, that they turned, they turned from their evil way, and God repented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. These work well together, not against each other. Not to mention, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. So even narrative is profitable for doctrine. It's also worth pointing out that since we exchanged opening statements prior to the debate, we were able to examine the scriptures of our, our opponents used. They used 19 different narrative passages as proof texts in their opening statement alone. This is almost a third of the scripture used in their opening statement. So this appears to be a double standard then, where we cannot show truths about God from narratives, but they can. We should also add that the 19 narratives they used do not include the scripture where a didactic statement was made in the middle of a narrative. This will come into importance later in the debate as we also use didactic statements that are made in the middle of narratives. And we predict our opponents will point that out, uh, that we are using a narrative for our case, when in reality, uh, we are just using the same of didactic statements they are. Again, they need to disprove stories like Nineveh, like Hezekiah, like Moses pleading with God, like Saul no longer being king, like Christ being able to call down a legion of angels, and I do not think they will be able to do so. All right. Uh, nine seconds. You guys are good. Okay. All right. So we're going to move on to the next round of our debate, which is the cross-examination and so with the cross-examination, uh, if, 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 one, if one person asks any party of the other team a question, it is okay for the party that did not ask the question to chime in if they feel that they want to. So for example, if Eric asks Bo a question, Tony Nash 
is able to jump in and ask the question as well if he wants to or deal with that same part of the question so that's it this is a 40 minute cross x and uh both of you guys both teams will get 20 minutes each to cross examine and so therefore uh mr merrick and tony you guys are up first for your 20 minute cross examination of dominique and Bo. and so i will start your time as soon as you guys begin to speak all right thank you so much um okay so how about we start with uh you guys said in your opening statement that certain things are predetermined and so God knows they will occur in the future, but that doesn't mean everything is, right? What is your criteria to determine whether or not something's predetermined by God and what isn't? Uh, our criteria is Isaiah 46.10. He says it and he will do it. Okay. Um, so how do you actually apply that principle in a period like 2023 where scripture uh, where we don't, we can't look at all these places where things aren't predetermined, supposedly. Like, how, how do you apply that standard in 2023? I don't concern myself with what God's predetermined or not. He tells me that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and that's what I know. Um, he tells us, and it'll happen. The only thing in the Bible that tells us how we can determine what's him doing it or not him doing it, which is the context of Isaiah 46, is he will say it, and he will bring it to pass. Okay, but according to your opening statement and your rebuttal, uh, that's not true, right? Because God can go back on his statements. Absolutely. In 46.10, he says, I will do my good pleasure. His pleasure can change based on what's going on in life as applied to Jeremiah 18 as well. So he says, I will do my good pleasure and his pleasure can change at times and he can do what he wants to do. He's God. So in Isaiah 46, 10, where it says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. Um, when he says declaring the end from the beginning, where do you see the idea of mutability in that? What is, define mutability. Like, it, it can change. Yeah, I, earlier in Isaiah 42, we see that God declares new things. And so things are, he's declaring new things, and he has been declaring new things for a long time. So this is, uh, it's not this thing that's been eternally settled, uh, but it is new things come about. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm not going to necessarily respond to that because. Uh, we lost. Oh, okay. uh, there. New for God. Oh, there we go. But. Tony, you might want to go back. Oh, oh sorry. Um, okay, thanks. Um, so another question I have is from Job uh, 14.5, where it says all of our God knows all of our days and all of our months so that we cannot pass them, which is another quote, another text we use in our opening statement. Uh, how do you understand that? Like, does that mean all of our days are eternally settled on your view, or would you say that's not true? I can do yeah, a so short, quick rebuttal, and then Dominic can take it because he's done study on this. Um, it would be similar to the Isaiah text. So he says, since our days are determined, the number of the months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. This is specifically about him. But if we take specifics, what about Hezekiah? God says, take up your mat. You shall surely die. These are examples of narrative texts that um, demonstrate that this thing is specifically about Job. The your days are numbered, your limits are set. It's specifically about Job. 
because if that's applied to Hezekiah, is God wrong? Did God forget? If he's eternally settled Hezekiah's days, why say, take up your mat, you're going to die soon? Oh, wait, I'm adding 15 years. So this is specifically about Job, but I'll let Dominic, Dominic's done more studying on this one as well. Right. Also, after the flood, we see that the Lord says that, and this is in Genesis Genesis 6, uh, 6 verse 3, that man's days shall be 120 years. Essentially, all the people nowadays who are trying to make men immortal and live, you know, a thousand years, that's never going to happen again. Yet God has set our days at about 120 years. People don't live longer than 120 years. And even in that Job, 14 5 verse right before that it says who can bring a clean thing out of the unclean no one who can make man and this is me talking now who can make man live to a thousand years old now no one okay so it seems that that passage in job is not just about job and my reasoning for that is because it's repeated by david in psalm 139 yeah. 16 as the as the appraise of the congregation of israel um so it says, your eyes saw my substance being yet informed in your book. They were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. So it seems like this is not just about Job. This is something that the people of Israel saw as applying to themselves as well. Um, mm -hmm. So what would be your response to that? This does not seem just to be a cap on a, a human age as like its biological limit, but that we have a, our days are determined individually. So what would your response yeah, to that so be? Salt Psalm 139, I am a pro-life activist and abolitionist. Uh, Psalm 139, this passage is one of my favorite to use in the pro-life fight because this is about fetology. So if we start reading in Psalm 139, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. This is talking about when you're developing in the womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. So when I was made in secret, what's that talking about? That's talking about the reproductive uh, uh, cycle. This is talking about uh, being uh, conceived. I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And so this is about the, your, the baby in the womb when it's first conceived. It doesn't look like there's not a lot of substance until it gets you know later on in pregnancy. So your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and your book, they were all written the days fashioned for me. That's God. He designed this process this process of pregnancy he designed this process of a baby growing from you know just a you know just right at conception to a full baby and so that that's what this is getting at here well it says when as yet there were none of them um so this does seem to be future tense language so it's not just about right. talking when about baby... not stating what's happening in the current biological mm -hmm. process but god is actually able to make a confident statement about the 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 days that will come so that means that uh, god knows that that person i guess on your view wouldn't be aborted i guess like is that uh, what, no it just means that, that god no, knows god has a plan and he knows how babies will grow god set up that process and then he knows that babies are going to go through that process even before they do okay merrick did you want to ask okay. a question I would yeah like sure <laughs> Nowhere, nowhere. Uh, I don't know if we'll have time. Real quick. Yeah. Nowhere does it say in that text what you're alluding to. You're alluding to the fact that it says God is. So let me read the text. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So this is poetry and we can take, you guys mentioned didactic versus anthropomorphic versus narrative. This is poetry. And it is David demonstrating how immaculate it is as there were none of them. It is literally a sperm and an egg coming together. Now you got a human being. How immaculate and awesome is that? That's what's being portrayed. And nowhere in this scripture does it say, God knows every one of my days as a certainty to the point where I'll die. He knows when I'm dying, I'm going to die. It never states that in this text. It's basically saying how wonderful, it's poetry about how wonderful and awesome God is. He sees me, he knows the hairs on my head as if there was nothing. When I was a sperm and an egg, he knew the process. He put it together sure. and he is an awesome, beautiful working God. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, a, amen to it to a lot of that. Um, obviously, I, I don't think I would expect it to use some of that open theist philosophical language, but let's move a little bit. So kind of to the topic of rogue molecule, I don't want to stick on that too much, but could there be a a rogue hair fall from the head of one of God's children. Yeah, God is able to prevent hairs from falling from the head, like the, the sparrow passage, not a sparrow falls from the sky, mm -hmm. apart from my father's will. The father is able to prevent sparrows from falling from the sky. And the same would be true sure. with a hair from a head. God wants to but, stop that. But, of but he does, he, like, does he ensure that not a single hair from any of the heads of his children will fall without his permission, like not a single one? Or do you say maybe there's some rogue hairs? I would guess that God doesn't care about a lot of hairs. So <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, brother, oh, brother, I, I, I think he does. I think our risen Lord does, certainly. Um, so there is a hymn which reads, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. And so I want to know, would you be like, say we're out preaching and some brothers started, started singing that, would you be comfortable singing that on the basis of believing that perhaps God wasn't actually, the, those who at the time of the crucifixion would, would be born later, it wasn't actually settled, all, all of the, the people of God throughout the ages, and therefore it would be like theologically inaccurate. Obviously it's a hymn, you can disagree with it, I'm just wondering. Yeah, when I'm doing ministry, I don't. I try to present a unified front with the other believers who are out there with me. So I sure. wouldn't, you know, bring up a giant theology discussion to unbelievers. Yeah, but but like, so I'm talking about like the the personality, right? So uh, Paul says, "The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me." And so you kind of brought up the aspect of, well, you know, the the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Right. And I agree with that and I affirm that. But I'm wondering what about that cuts against the idea that there's also this personal aspect where he bore our sins in his body on that tree. And, and can that truly be affirmed by you guys? Or, or would you interpret those very clearly doctrinal texts? We would all agree that it's doctrine, it's not narrative, uh, perhaps in a, in, a, in a different fashion. Yeah, I think that God, what you were saying in your opening statement about his sacrifice is enough to pay for the sins of the entire world, even people who have not been born yet. I think, of course, his blood does have the power to cover even those sins. Mm -hmm. But but did Christ go to that cross with the intention of saving particular people? I, I'm not making a Calvinist argument here. I'm making a Paul yeah, says he died. Let me for answer me. that. He said, yeah, yeah go okay, ahead. let me answer that. Um, second Peter two, uh, it mentions false teachers 
And, and this is exactly what it says. It says, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon destruction to themselves. So at the end of this chapter, it reveals to us that these false teachers end up in hell. Jesus has bought them. They're denying the Lord that bought them. Whether God knows about them or not, they're all purchased. I believe everyone's purchased with the blood of Christ. And these people deny the master that bought them. And that's a quick so, answer to yeah. your question. Sure. So, so you said whether he knows them or not, but then you said he bought them. So, so are you saying Christ goes yes. to the cross to buy people that he doesn't know or doesn't know of? Not, not in the he, salvific yeah. no sense at that point because they don't exist yet, obviously. Mm -hmm. Oh, Bo, are you muted? Yeah, Bo, you're muted. Bo, I think you're. Okay. I, I think you're muted, Bo. Yeah, but yeah. So I have. I'll let uh, I have no problem, Yeah, I have no problem saying that God, uh, he, you know, gave his sacrifice of his sin for people who he wasn't thinking about at the time. Of course, he was thinking about everyone who was currently alive at the time. There was a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, running around the world when Jesus was being yeah. So uh, sacrificed. So you think perhaps his. Perhaps his sacrifice was more valuable to those who were currently alive. Like, I'm, I'm really trying to understand the the text and even Bo quoted, quoted this is these false prophets who the Lord bought. Right. That That's personal language. Even in the Greek, if you look, it's very personal language. Again, there's tons of other citations. So so can Christ look at me and say because you, you portrayed it kind of well, it's all yeah. about me, 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 I, as if it's some like humanistic inclination. But in reality, the fact that he had to die for me, me, me is really bad on my end. So can Christ, right, say, and right. I'll go to a different line of reasoning. Can he look at me and say, I bought you? Yeah, my my brother, if he has a son, I will be good friends with his son, even though I don't know who he is right now. And I will have a personal relationship with his son, just like how Jesus, he can have a personal relationship with people who don't even, uh, yeah. he knows so he will if, have a personal relationship with people who don't even exist. If, if, your, if your brother take, your brother's son who doesn't exist yet, if he takes a bunch of loans out at a bank, can you pay for all of those loans right now without ever knowing how much they will be? Christ's oh, no, blood can pay that. for any loan. <laughs> my, well, my, absolutely. Actually, but, but it says me, ours. It says ours, right? Yeah. yeah, I need to press you guys on this a little bit because the language of the scripture is a little bit more familial where it says our sins, the Lord laid upon him the iniquities of us all. Mm -hmm. Sin itself is an act. It's a it's an act against God, right? It's not some mm -hmm. created substance that exists somewhere and then God puts it on Christ. It's actually an act that we do to transgress God's will. So how is God placing acts which transgress his will on Christ to pay for them for people that don't even exist? And God doesn't know they'll exist. Uh, yeah. yeah, I would. I, go, go ahead. I don't think I don't think this comes up in scripture there. You might have an answer for us um, that you're but I just I don't think that kind of stuff comes up in scripture. There's some questions that, that we might have that there's not really like a scriptural answer. I'm not going to extrapolate. And so that's why I'm not like making answers. I'm using just what the scriptures say. So uh, also, I can tell you what I think, <laughs> but I'm not, I don't have like a yeah, specific verse I want right. to point to. You know what I'm saying? Also, it's worth pointing out that, you know, whether or not Christ knew about individual sins, you know, before they happened, individual people before uh, they existed, that does not disprove the existence of other unsettled events. Okay. But it would, suggests that God would eternal would know 
every single person that would exist and what sins they would commit. So your 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 amount of unsettled events is like basically almost zero. And practically, open theism is basically moot at that point because God basically knows literally almost every single thing. At that point, all of your acts, God knows. I mean, what practical benefit does God not knowing the like not knowing the future actually have an open theism if you can never know if he knows anything you do or not, I guess, is my question. Yeah, I guess I, we're just coming from such a different, uh, like these are two very different systems. I think you're asking, how can Christ die for things he doesn't know? Is that what you're asking? Well, yeah, I mean, he's he's making a yeah. sacrifice. Well, even from the Father's perspective, right, mm-hmm. who's accepting the sacrifice to forgive us for those sins. Yeah. How does the Father accept the sacrifice for sins that he doesn't even know will occur yeah so going back to your analogy about my brother taking out a bunch of loans if i am a vast billionaire 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 i have all this money i can make a fund and not not even tell my brother's son about it and just say this fund is for if he ever is going to go into debt this will cover that debt and so in the same way christ's blood it's powerful enough there's you know enough of it there's no limitation on it it can cover even future uh, even future sins, even when they haven't been, uh, they haven't been brought into reality yet. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I, I guess we can move on to a different topic. Um, yeah. so one of the, th- one of the things we wrap in our opening statement is the notion of how to test whether a prophet's true or false. So we see in yeah. Deuteronomy 18, God says that, uh, we can know one way of a prophet is false or not as if they say something will come to pass and then it doesn't and god says if they say something will come to pass and it doesn't they speak with presumption which is a sin mm-hmm. so on your yeah. view it seems like you're arguing in your opening statement that god unequivocally unconditionally says things will happen and then they don't yes. which means by god's own criteria he would be committing the sin of presumption is that correct uh, Jonah right, so as well should have been stoned by your standard. Uh, just because something said and it doesn't happen and God changes his mind on that or relents his judgment doesn't mean that it's a false prophecy. Um, all prophecies, I would say most prophecies have an element of contention in there or contingency in there. So Jonah, by the Deuteronomy 18 standard, you know, that shouldn't be applied in this way because Jonah himself would have been stoned by Nineveh and all the other Jeremiah should have been stoned. Um, Isaiah should have been stoned and all these people that say things, um, God should have been stoned because he said, Hezekiah, you're going to die. That doesn't apply to God or true prophecies because God truly was saying, Hezekiah, you will die. Then Hezekiah prays and God adds 15 well, years. My, it's not that well, it's a false it, prophecy. It was true at the time. Well, our position, and I didn't get to get to this in my part, but I actually mm-hmm. think Jeremiah 18 is actually in our favor here because there are certain statements where God states that are conditional, right? There are certain things he states that are conditional, not unconditional. So in the cases of Jonah, for example, when God says he will destroy them, that's on the basis that they don't repent because he promised in Jeremiah 18, if a nation repents, he won't destroy it. Right. So God's right. conditional is only conditional so can only exist. If the so there's no literal change of mind that can occur if he's simply sticking to a promise. Right. So if God has an underlying principle about how he is going to change his mind and he says, this is how I'm going to change my mind in all these situations. And then God goes through that and he does change his mind according to that principle. That underlying principle doesn't change. But to say, oh, here, look at God. He's changing his mind. That's an argument that, you know, it's all been the same all along. That just that falls flat. 
Well, yeah, no, like that shows it's non-literal. It's an analogous way of speaking. If I say, if I say to my kid, hey, if you don't put, if, if they steal the cookie and I said, I'm going to punish you, but I'll change my mind about punishing you if you put the cookie back in the jar. Well, there's no real literal change of mind that's occurring by going with a other stated intention based on a condition being fulfilled. So yes, God yeah, the problem by going on the ba- by acting on the basis of a condition being met. And so that's the point we're yeah, making so is the- that when God promises mm-hmm. to forgive nations when they repent, God's not actually changing his mind by sticking to his promise. I think there's a little bit of a difference. Yeah, the problem, the problem is if we look warning. Here, here, I'm going to jump in here. The problem is you if go, we look directly go, go. at Jeremiah, that the problem is if we look directly at Jeremiah, it says the opposite. It says the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, yada, yada, yada. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will re- repent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. This is about God's thoughts. This yeah. is giving us a peek inside the mind of God. And right. so God right. says, I, I repent, I change my mind. I'm not doing that, which I thought I'm going to do. And then you guys are saying, oh, you, you are, you did think that. And so that- well, no, that's- he, he, did, he did think that if that nation, right? If that, that key clause, if yeah. that the nation underlying principle, is the he believed, he believed the underlying principle all along. That never changed. I agree with you that that underlying principle never changes. But the underlying principle saying this is how I'm going to change, uh, that is uh, the change. It is a real change because God says, here's my underlying principle for how I'm going to change. And then he follows that underlying principle. He goes. Yeah. If so, yeah. If someone. Yeah. That's just a weird analogous way of speaking. And even in the human example I gave you, it, it proves that if someone says, they're not going to punish. They're going to change their mind about punishing you if you change your action. They're not actually creating a literal change of state. They're simply going with an intention they said they would go with. They, they so are. That, that's the they point. are. If they and yeah, if so a no parent change. intends to reward his child and then that child disobeys, that parent's intention changes. No, because but he. The, I'm that, talking that, about the scenario don't, don't, I gave yeah. specifically. I'm talking about the scenario I gave specifically, right? And that so is let, let me phrase it let me phrase it as a question and sorry marlon but i think we're having a good discussion so it's super cordial appreciate it yeah if if the parent says if you do x i'll do y if you do z i'll do b or whatever what the change that is that the change is in the son it's not in the parent because the parent already stated all of all of all the conditions mm-hmm. whatever happens it's already stated so where is the change in the parent? Where's the change in God? Because all I see textually, narratively, and I, I've read these, you know, prophets crazy in our fight against abortion. I love Jeremiah. Where is the change in God, though? The change is in yeah. The problem. The, the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. The problem so, yeah, is that's, God that's says this is my intention from the beginning. He says if I intend to bless a nation and then they sin against me, I will no longer bless them. He says this is the original intention, but then here's how the future is changeable. Yeah, but that's that's yeah, going back to Mary's yeah. example. The change is in the the person's not in God. Right. So God doesn't just say you know if this then this if this then this. He says I intend to do this unless X and then that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The, the change is still in the, in the persons. Yeah, because then X except happened and then he did what he said he, he would says, do. Yeah. He says, I will not do that which I thought I would do. This is inside the mind yes. of God. What, but uh, Dominic, don't you see what I thought I would do 
is in reference to if that nation and I, i've looked at the hebrew and I, I got my friend at the concordia seminary to look at the hebrew for me that that is what it's in reference to and so it you know what i would do it's in reference to if that nation don't you see how those two things clearly connect and so if that nation is in reference again to the physical state of the that people and that polity not in yeah. to the to to god I, I, I agree there's a contingency. I agree that this is unsettled and it's dependent on what these people do. I agree with that. I don't disagree with that. The point is, is that this possibility of them going this way or that way, that does not make sense with a future which is settled one direct future if there's multiple possibilities. Yeah, yeah we sure. would just say God um, knows do I have any, all any more time? possibilities. Yeah, yeah right. how much time do we have? I couldn't hear either of that. Talk over each other. Sorry, oh, we, sorry, we just say God knows all the possibilities. So, yeah, that doesn't make sense in a in a in a model of the future that is settled. There is no possibility. There is just what it is and what it's not. There's no possibility. That's a in an total total straw man and a misconnard of our entire position. But well, so, so because God, when we're talking about the future being eternally settled, we're talking about in this world. So God can know every possibility that would occur in any possible world, quote unquote, so to speak. So God knows every single possible action, every single person this world could have done and knows the outcomes of them. So that's when we made our is argument from in... our opening statement on the basis of God having knowledge of counterfactuals is that when God knows exactly what a person would do in any hypothetical scenario, he also therefore knows what they will do in any given scenario that happens in this world too. Is there a possibility of you doing something outside hey, of the decree? Hey, Dominique, you can't you can't ask questions unless it's your oh, turn. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I get in. I think I think we're just going back and forth. So I'll phrase it the other yeah. way. Dominic, no, we're having a good back and forth here. Yeah, yeah. So Dominic, you're basically asking if we're in this actual world, is there any possibility? And so um the the answer is in this, right? Again, getting into the different things, when we refer to possibilities, we're we're talking about God knows our frame. He knows our, our physical ontology. And so there's a distinction, again, if we want to get philosophical between antecedent and like suppositional necessity, I'm not sure how philosophical we want to get with that. Um, and, and, you know, we could parse that out, but I guess in, for the sake of the, the viewers, maybe we should want to focus back a little bit. All right, that's time, guys, right there. All right, Dominique and Bo, you guys are up for your 20-minute cross-ex of Merrick and, and Tony. All righty, let's start it off. So thank you guys for everything. Um, I'm going to try to thank do you. this right. Do this good. Um, in cross-examination. So uh, I'll start out with a couple of questions. In Exodus 32, God tells Moses that he will destroy Israel and he will make a great nation out of Moses. What is the eternally settled future at that point? Uh, what he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so so God says two things. So He's promising Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did He promise them? The prosperity of their seed. The Israel would basically bring forth the Messiah. Okay, and then also He says, "I will destroy them, and I will make a great nation of you," which would continue to seed. Um, he's going to make, and He says this over and over. He says He'll make a great nation out of these people, those people. He's still continuing that line in this argument. He'll destroy everyone but Moses and maybe someone else. Um, he'll make a great nation out of them. Um, what is the eternally settled future in that point when he says, I will no, destroy I disagree them and make with a great your nation of you? 
I disagree with your interpretation because Moses appealing to that promise means that your interpretation of that's wrong. He he appeals to that it's promise not. because it's about what Israel. what is what is the eternally settled future? What is determined the to happen settled. after he says I will? So so in that moment, it's possible that Moses didn't know what the eternally settled future was. But from God's what is God's what's what God's Moses determination? Did. Okay, what is God's next move? God says, I will destroy them. I will build a nation out of you. What's God's next move? What? He relents his judgment. Is that correct? Yeah. God with, says, with Moses okay, he relents yes. his judgment. Cool. Okay. Yes. In Isaiah 30, 38, God tells Hezekiah to get his house in order because he's going to die soon. What is the eternally settled future for Hezekiah? The eternally is it that he's going to die soon? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, this is that's not on the eternally settled, settled future. future. No, that's okay. What's, what's the eternally settled future? The eternally settled future what, is what actually ended up happening. What ended up happening? Hezekiah didn't die. Okay. In Revelation 22, Jesus tells us that he is coming soon. What is the eternally settled future? That Jesus will be 70 coming AD. Soon Just kidding. <laughs> That he will be coming soon, according yeah. to how he says it, because the Father knows when Jesus okay. will come. Okay. So the so that is eternal because yeah. the Father knows the day and the hour. Absolutely, absolutely. If God can tell us that He's going to do something, then not do it. How can we trust that He's coming back at all? That's a good question for you. So God, but I would say Exodus thirty-two. I, I, Exodus thirty-two. Uh -huh. God says, "I'm going to joy, destroy them. I will make a great nation of you." He says in Isaiah 38, Hezekiah, you will die. Take up your map. He says, I'm coming soon. How do we not know the pattern's going to be followed and that Jesus won't come back because the future's eternally settled that he doesn't do that? And God's just telling us something deceitful. Right. So from our perspective, what we said in our rebuttal is that a lot of these times in these places, God is bringing forth a real threat because he's trying to get them to lean on his attributes and his promises. So in the case of Hezekiah, he's getting Hezekiah to lean on his promises to that he does not desire the death of the wicked, but will forgive those who repent. In the case of Moses, he's getting Moses to lean on his promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when he states real threats on the basis of a condition that really could happen to Moses, Moses then leans on God's promises and his attributes of mercy and God eternally willed through Moses's prayer to bring that about. So would you say that God's saying, I will do something, not I intend or I may do something, I will do something and then not doing it. Is that a little bit deceitful? No, because it's stated on a condition. It's stated on a condition. Moses, know? Moses doesn't have condition, to know. You believe? Well, I, I think the, the, in the in the Hebrew, Sorry to interrupt, but I think in, in Exodus 32, it actually, the word is may. It, it's like the, the nifle okay. verb stem. And so, yeah. Yeah. There's another one in, in Ezekiel 20 when it says he will, he will sure. do this. Yeah. I think it I'll, I'll grant it. that. Sure. Um, but just for the other thing, Hezekiah, you will die. It's not you may die. It is you will die. Mm -hmm. Hey, Tony, if I tell you you will die tomorrow and, and I'm God, what, what are you going to believe? So from my perspective, I might think that might be true in the moment, but because when I bring to remembrance God's, so God, God might yes, give you truth. No, no, no. God when, may tell us the truth. He just God, may. 
No, when God said yes, if God were to say to me yesterday, other than the statement he's saying to me today, Tony, you will live to be 100. And then the next day he says, you're going to die. So in that moment, I might be frightened and be like, wait, what's going on? God's contradicting himself here. What's happening? So what I would do is I would appeal to his promise out of faith, knowing that he is faithful. And in that moment, I might be ignorant of what my fate might be, but I have more trust in God's promises than my ignorance. And yeah, so and I would God, just quickly you add that tomorrow. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Merrick, you want to talk? Or Tony? But I, I would just say quickly, so like just adding another aspect, like Hezekiah's great grandson through Manasseh was Josiah, which is like in the line of Christ. And so I think if you take these conclusions and we could talk about it if you want your time, do whatever you want. I think it opens up a whole can of worms. I'll, I'll just throw that in there. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah, I'll move on. Yeah. Um, in Genesis 6, God tells us that he repents of making man. Is this a figurative repentance? Yeah, yeah so, so I would say it is, it is, oh, go ahead. No, <laughs> no, you, you take the floor, Merrick. You got it. So I, I would say it, it's very clearly like Naham, right? I, I can't pronounce it super well. I know mm -hmm. a little bit of Arabic, but um, I would say that, that that term describing God's reaction, it's anthropomorphic in a sense. And I know you think that's kind of weird, but I think it's just a reaction to the horrible wickedness and pervasive corruption of the human race, right? The rest of the verse okay. is intensely anthropomorphic. He, it, sa it says God was pained to his heart. And so it communicates to the reader that the, the deity, Christ or God, he, he's not this remote, like distance, distance, like uninterested in the evil of men. But no, he, he is intensely concerned with it. And so it gives the correct impression of God that he's not like static. And I think that's really what it's trying to convey in human language. And again, if we don't have anthropomorphism, God literally has to be silent because that's who he's communicating to. Okay, so God repents of making man, then destroys every single man on the planet. Is the flood figurative as well, or is the flood just an anthropomorphism? No, he it, it is. Everyone. He left Noah alive. Right. Yes, so... he did. But he repents of yeah. making man, then destroys him. If I make a cake, and I'm saying, man, I changed my mind about this cake, and I throw it out, but I keep a little more batter to make some more, did I really repent? I, I think I did. I think I changed my mind. But if I, I'm making a cake and I say, man, I changed my mind about this and I continue to bake the cake and I serve it to my guests, that's not a figure of speech. I mean, that would be a figure of speech. But the yeah, other one, you would so, be yeah, a figure I, of speech. I, I don't, <laughs> it, 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 I'm just saying, look, look, so I, I don't says, think I repent and then he destroys every man except for eight. That's not a figure of speech. That so, is a legitimate. He does repent and change his mind. No, it's yeah, a you know, I would say it's, it, How, I, I think what it's is very a figure clearly of speech just knowing that. It, it, I, I just to respond earlier, I think it's it's just showing that God's dynamic. He's a living being. He, he has personality and and you, using this language, he's concerned with and, and reacting to how people live, live their lives. And again, that verse is like intensely anthropomorphic. God was pained yeah. to the heart. And so, you know, God is also said to, to have like a mouth in the middle of a historical passage. So just because just it to is clarify, history, there's also that aspect to it. Just to clarify, in Genesis 6, when it says God repents that he made, made man, you think that is a figure of speech, meaning he does not repent that he makes man. Yeah, it, what it means is that he's producing the effects similar to a person who actually changes their mind, right? That's how we interpret it. And then he destroys every man that he's ever made. Yeah, when, the problem is God says... Every, <laughs> and that's no one is family alive. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so the point we're yeah. making is that when God says I'm pain to the heart, that doesn't mean he has an organ. He's expressing something similar to a person who is pain to the heart. So when God says he repents, he's expressing something similar to the human concept of what it means to change our mind. But that does not denote that he's literally actually having that state of affairs. Right. So that's the problem the with that. Though, is then, the problem is he then takes an action to follow up what he said. Yeah. He's producing effects yep. similar to a person he, he, who changes saying, their mind. He's saying that he's saying uh, this change. <laughs> then he changed his and mind. Then he's taking an action no, to show that he Insane. No, that doesn't mean that at all. Like it does not follow. If to produce I'm effects, similar, I change my mind. I throw it in the trash. Mind. So, so no, let me take it. Let me take a step back. Not what I, Tony. I'm making a cake. I'm making a cake. I have an effect similar to changing my mind. I throw the cake out. Did I change my mind about the cake? Did you throw? Did you throw the entire cake out? Okay. Like I, I threw out a lot of it. It was evil. I destroyed it. It, was, it had mold on it. <laughs> I was sorrowed that man was so wicked, that the, the cake was so mold. Like the thing is, he he says, I repent, I change my mind. Then he destroys most of mankind. He's making an action. He's he's changing his mind. I don't understand well, how that's we're, figured. We're saying that this is we're saying this is anthropomorphic in the sense that when God says I'm pinged to the heart, he doesn't actually have a heart. Like in the human conception of okay. what a heart means. Can God can God change his mind? In the literal human way of understanding that, no. Okay, how can he change his mind? You say he, in the literal sense, what about the other sense? He changes his mind. In the mind. way that he describes in the scriptures. Oh, sorry. So no, yeah, he would do yeah. one thing, then do another. That's 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 the figurative yeah, change. Yeah, so, so, so plan to do one take, thing, take it. Then change his mind, do another. Yeah, so the take effect of changing his mind, in the human, changing your mind. It's not so, No, take it, you're in the mind. human person. You're in the human perspective of, oh, hey, I'm the person that God's writing this word, word to, right? And God is doing this, doing this, doing this, and he abruptly ceases and he goes the other way. How are you going to describe that about the God who is on his holy hill, Mount Zion, and you know, eternally fixed in the heavens? Well, in the same way that it uses the language of God as pain to the heart, okay, he also changed his mind. That's a clear, um, consistent interpretation that uh, is... is like, I, I don't see what exactly is the struggle there for you guys and what the hang-up is. Again, we have deeper down disagreements. I'm, I'm not but... understanding, but we can move on because I think we're just going in circles. Sure. We believe repentance is true because God says it, and then God does something to the effect of, I mean, he has the effect of repentance. I think that's repentance. Um, but next, uh, you stated that we use narrative text to prove our points, yet you use Numbers 2319, an obvious narrative text, to prove your point. What evidence do you have that this verse is didactic, even though it is clearly a narrative? Yeah, so I cited that passage because it's a negative passage. So I cited passages okay. of negation to give more content to positive statements in Scripture. Okay, what is the context of Numbers 23? You, uh, Are you looking, what's the context of Numbers 23? It's oh, the oracles of Balaam, look it up. right? I'll give you, I'll give you some... I'll give you some time to look it up on the internet, but what is the context of Numbers 23? Yeah, it, it's the oracles of Balaam, and I, I don't really think that was necessary language. Come on, man, that, that was not... That, that was but not look, nice. look, Numbers 23. Let's look at it. It says, what what is the context? So he says, uh, let me get to it. What was it, 19, 13? God is not a man that he should lie. What is the lie? 
Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not actually familiar. No, I. I don't know. And I'll. I'll admit that to you. And if you want to say, okay. "Oh, I need to go Google it on the internet," I'm going to have the humility to say, "I'm not. I don't know what the lie is." No, I. I haven't gotten. So that far. I would just question you guys: Why use context of something, or why use a verse that you're not familiar with in your opening statement? Sorry, Tony, it, if, it you, if you want to give your answer, oh, can you hear? It? Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yep. yep. Yeah. Yes, yeah, why we use the passage if we don't know exactly the full context? Was that the question? Yes. Yeah, that's basically okay. the question. So, so the reason for me using that passage was to maybe kind of do some kind of funny, cool internal critique because y'all use narrative yeah. passages, so we'll use some for our position. But another, another reason okay. why I used it too is because I was using it in the context of anthropomorphisms. When, it, when there's a, someone saying God is not like a man in this way, it's showing that if there's a text where it says God does this in the way a man does, we have a, we have precedence to interpret that as something analogous to human behavior. So when it says in Numbers 23 or in 1 Samuel 15, where it says God is not like a man that he should change his mind, then we have precedence okay. whenever it says in Scripture where God changes his mind to not interpret that in the same way a human changes his mind. Okay. Yeah, like so, I, I, I get what you're trying, trying to, to say, but I, I don't think the rhetorical point is really uh, uh, proving your point here. I mean, I, I'm seeing now that the, the promise was of like, um, you know, sustaining them, but like, I, I don't think that really yeah. advances your argument. Honestly, I think that was very uncharitable of you. So. Okay, but let's let's move on to that. So he says, "What is the lie? God is not a man that he should lie." And I think this is important. Because you're using it as a proof text, even though it's narrative. Let's say it's didactic. Let's say it's a didactic. But it's text. internal critique. It's in, it's internal okay, critique. Yeah, so like the content of the lie doesn't matter. It, we're talking about like the nature of using that no, language does. of lie. So it could be in tons of different things. We're talking about it, no, that no, no, no. Because you're using this as if it's a blanket statement for everything, and I'm I'm telling you, it's contextual. What is the lie? I'll tell you the lie. The lie is in Numbers 22. He says, um, "Let me get right to it." Um, Balaam said to Balak, behold, I'm the one that needs to Google it. <laughs> um, basically, the, the lie is God says you have you need to bless them um, and you will bless right. them. And that is that is the lie. Mm -hmm. So God is not a man that he should lie. Balaam is paid by Balak to curse Israel. But somehow Balaam mm -hmm. tries to read it. Balak Balak and sure. Yeah. And then so Balaam goes and tries three times and can't curse them. And why? Because God says that he will bless them. And actually in this verse, if you go down a little more, it says, um, have I, let me see. He has blessed and I cannot, behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. So what is the lie? The lie is you should bless. And I have been commanded to bless. So why is he saying God cannot lie in this text? Why is he saying God cannot change his mind? God has commanded Balaam to bless them. He's getting paid to curse them. He tries to curse them. He ends up blessing them. So what's the difference? He says, I cannot change my mind. It's specifically about, I cannot change my mind and allow Balaam to curse them. I cannot lie and allow Balaam to curse them because I have hi basically hired, not hired him, but I've commanded him to bless. So the lie, what is the lie? God cannot lie. God cannot say, I'm going to bless them and then allow Balaam just because he's getting paid to curse them. What is the change his mind? I can't change my mind. God is not going to say he's going to bless them, turn around and allow Balaam because he's getting paid to turn around and curse. Does that make sense? Yeah. And can I respond to and that? The reason, yeah, you can. You can. 
So I would say that I think all that is definitely relevant to the statement, but I would also add that there's a further principle being applied from that simply because okay. the text says not like a man that he should lie or change his mind. So how is this deli okay. how is this differentiating God from a from manhood? Couldn't a human also say the same exact thing based off your description? Uh, okay, so oh man, I lost my second verse. Um, okay, let's go let's go to Hosea 11:9. And so I just want to clarify, you're saying because God says I'm not like a man, that makes it kind of a blanket statement instead of like God saying, I change my mind. It kind of trumps the other ones. Is that correct? It's it's basically at, it's adding more context to show why okay. God can't lie or change his mind because he isn't a man. Okay. So let's go to Hosea 8. I mean, it's Hosea 11, 8, and 9. And I didn't send this one to you guys because it's in cross-examination. But Hosea yeah, I, I love this 11, text, 9 yeah. says, I will not execute the fire, fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in terror. Because that says I am God and not a man, does that mean he will never judge Ephraim? He, yeah, I mean, I he think, says I'm not I a man. Just, I will not judge Ephraim again. I think it's just very clearly showing that it, it's denoting that and de demonstrating that God, contrary to humans, is totally faithful to keep covenant. So I think that's just, in, okay. you know, keeping covenant language. That, that's how I would interpret that. And I love that text, by the way. Yeah. So, so the way I'm just going to tell you guys how we look at it is if your interpretation of the numbers text, because he says, I'm not a man, I'm not, you know, I am God, I do not change my mind, means he never can change his mind. You would almost have to or assume that in Hosea, he cannot judge Ephraim because he says, I will not again judge Ephraim because I'm not a man. Well, if you flip a couple chapters over, he actually does judge Ephraim. And that's the question. This thing we have to bring about is if the, our standard of interpretation or her hermeneutic is because God says, I'm not a man, this, that, or a negative, you're saying it's a negative, so it makes more sense. This is a negative. I will not again judge Ephraim. And then he does. I think that demonstrates, um, I, I just think it's it's not a good argument to say God says he doesn't change his mind, and then that means he never changes his mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and I think um, the way I understand the text is like, it's, it's speaking to how basically he can control his anger so like kind of yeah. ezekiel 16 type language that's how we would take that i think okay yeah last thing i'm, I'm going to talk I'm about for to... yeah i'm, oh, I'm going to hey, jump hey, in uh, here Marlon. i'm not sure yeah you have about yeah, four go. minutes left okay four minutes left awesome okay so guys in jonah chapter three we see the prophecy of god saying he's going to destroy nineveh in 40 days however the people then repent and Nineveh was not destroyed. 41 days later, the city still stands. That shows the future was changed. Uh, this refutes the idea that the future is eternally settled. How do you guys explain this? I'm sorry, I got cut out. What was the what was the question one more time, Dominic? I'm sorry, my yeah. computer. How do you guys explain Jonah? How do you explain Jonah three, where God says in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed, and then 41 days later the city still stands? Mm -hmm. So, like, pointing back to uh, this, that is a statement based on a, a real condition that could have occurred. And so, pointing back to Jeremiah 18, he promises, he promises not to do that if they do repent. So, Could those people have continued in their sin? Yeah, 
did God decree that they would repent? Yes. So they could have done other than God decreed. No. What if we're talking about if we're talking about in this world, right? No, no if we're talking about in this yeah, if we're yes, talking about in this, this world. world in this yeah, because God has knowledge of all possibilities. What God knows what will happen in this world. But when God says this will occur, he is saying it based on a real actual possibility because he's part of his word is actually getting his de decree to be carried out. God creates things through his word. Let there be light in Genesis. So when God states this thing to them, this is actually create, this is a way to create repentance in them. So like, it's not an inconsistency on our position, at least in our, our minds. You're saying that God decreed this sin and that God's decrees always come to pass, or sorry, God decreed this repentance. God's decrees always come to pass. They always have to come to pass. That is the settled future, yet uh, they could have done otherwise. That's that's what I'm hearing. And I think that's yeah, what because, the audience is hearing. I think the audience should be intimately familiar with when, when you use the word can, you can refer to like, okay, ontologically, do they have the ability to? Uh, yeah, right. You know, or or like in terms of possible worlds or all these things, because now you're going off to philosophy because you're talking about a contradiction. Mm -hmm. But we all know there's like like Will Duffy, I think, in a Facebook post went like all the different meanings of like can and like will and may and all these different things. So it's like I think it's a really loaded question. And for you just to assert that it's contradictory. Well, there's like a tons of different ways we can understand that word. And it, it's only a contradiction on, under under one specific way that we're not using. So. Yeah. Now, to me, that all sounds like a, a word salad. If I'm being blunt, it doesn't it's it sounds like sure. it's a contradiction and it's not much of an answer. Uh, but moving on uh, in Joshua, yeah. chapter three, verse 10, uh, Joshua said um, it says, and Joshua said, by this, you shall know that the living God is among you and he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, all those ites. And he is referencing a promise which God made himself in Exodus 34, 11, which says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, all the ites, all the ites. Uh, when God made this promise, and when Joshua repeated this promise that God made, what was God's intention? Um, I'm not super familiar with this text. I know there's like tons of parallels between what God does with Moses and then what God does with Joshua. Like actually my pastor did sure. a so, sermon talking about some of them recently. So. Mm -hmm. so what does that sound like God's intention is when he says, I will without fail drive out these people from before you? What does it sound like God's intention is? I, I would have to look at the broader context. Sure, sure. Well, I'm going to just for the audience, I'm going to uh, read this a generation later. So God promises Moses, he says, I'm going to drive out these people from before you. And then God reiterates that promise through Joshua. And then a generation later in Judges, uh, it says this is Judges 2.21. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer... Uh, drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. And so uh, to me, it seems that there's uh, on your end to deal with that, there's two uncomfortable options. One option is to say, okay, we're wrong and the future is changeable. That's one option. The other option is 
more uncomfortable, which is to say that when God said, I will without fail drive them out from before you, that he was not telling the truth. So it, uh, those seem to be the two options to me. It seems the audience, I would, I would right. assume they're, they're the two yeah, options. Yeah, I mean, I'd I, have to look you... into that more. I, I, I think just based off looking at those three texts real quick, I think it just means that like he will work with the Israelites and concur with them. And so like if they fail and fail to follow the covenant, like this won't have it. And so I think it's the covenant language is, is sort of implied there. All right. That's time, guys. Great discussion. Great debate. All right. So we are going to jump into our closing remarks now. Five minute closings and audience. Once again, make sure that you get your questions in because after the closings, we will have uh, a 30 minute Q&A. So uh, get those questions in. Uh, that's American. Tony, you guys are up for your five minute closing. And let me pause your time so it doesn't go before I wanted to. Uh, I'll start your time when you guys begin to speak. Tony, if you have anything to add, go, and then uh, I will pick it up. All right. All right. So in this debate, uh, me and Merrick laid out uh, all sorts of arguments. Some of them weren't really touched upon. Like, for example, our Deuteronomy 18 argument, uh, they just sort of hand-waved it and basically were like, well, if you interpret it that way, that would suggest other people were false prophets. Um, they never really dealt with our objections on. Oh, Tony, you there? How... Oh, there we go. You're back. yeah, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes. Um, they never dealt with our objections uh, that we raised about uh, God not knowing the future and the problem that arises with Christ's sacrifice. Also, on their view, uh, it makes having faith in God almost impossible. Uh, one of the things we pointed out in our rebuttal is that if God is going through actual literal changes of mind, that means he's changing on the basis of unconditionals. He's changing on the basis of promises he may have forgot. If he's stating unconditional intentions and then changes them, then that makes God ultimately untrustworthy. We can never have confidence in his word ever. And so that is a huge, dangerous implication of open theism. It makes it impossible to live the Christian life. We can't have confidence that our prayers will actually really be effective because God's promises aren't sure. Uh, we can actually justifiably have doubt in trusting in God's promises. And that's a terrible implication of open theism. We hope that they will uh, think about that. Um, some other things that uh, we brought out in our opening statement, like the predestination topic, the foreknowing knowledge, uh, the foreknowing language, uh, things happening before the foundation of the world, God knowing sins would occur in this world, that was never dealt with. Uh, another issue is that uh, they said some things are predetermined in the future, um, and that's how God knows them, but it seems like they have to commit to the idea that God does predetermine certain sinful acts, for God knows, knew what Josiah would do, and he did evil things. God knew that P Peter would... Uh, deny him three times, and that's a sinful act. And so they never really gave a criteria on how to determine what things are predetermined and which things are not. They're, they're in a really inconsistent uh, jumble on this issue, and we, we hope that our arguments were able to make our audience or the people watching and them think about some of their implications. So uh, if you can finish off, Merrick, if you want. Yeah, thanks. A uh, couple housekeeping items here. So I appreciate these guys' knowledge of the scriptures. You guys are really keeping me on my toes, so thank you. Um, 
do you guys like i would say you know do you have an issue with using narratives to respond to narratives i think that's basically what we did and so i think your point on our inconsistency of using narratives is kind of a moot point uh in regards to isaiah and like the new things uh surely those new things are in relation to isaiah and his audience right um also just real quick in terms of, like just because something it, it doesn't follow that if it is necessary that x happens that x happens necessarily that's a really really important distinction if you don't understand that that's the tons of stuff can be blown out of proportion um i want to read from the scriptures from psalm 94. your your mic's messed up oh is it it's doing it again let me stop your time Hey, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah we you're, can hear you. You're good. Okay, yeah, sorry about that. Um, Psalm 94, and they say, The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? I was really concerned with Dominic's uh, understanding when I just kind of bantered with him a little bit about Christ's very clear statement about the, the, head, the hairs on our head. So the, the implications for Christians and how how we live our life, it, it, it's very, very concerning. Um, I think open theism honestly makes exercising the virtue of faith almost impossible. And for that, I'm very grateful that my, my brothers here are inconsistent on that. God wants us to have unwavering confidence in him and his word and his promises. And so, you know, look at Abraham where Paul sets up Abraham as this sort of example of justification by faith as a means of assurance in the promise of God to him, Romans 4. Jesus also wants us to have faith in his promises and our prayers. And he says, whatever you ask, if you have do it in faith, you know, wh whatever you ask, you will receive it. James repeats this teaching. And so I'm kind of going on here. But I think if, if open theism were truly true, then it would be one would be justified in the Christian life of reserving doubts and trusting with full confidence and the promises of God. Again, I think you have to reject penal substitutionary atonement, all these other things. Would love to talk more. Reach out to me on Facebook if you want to talk about them. Uh, when I first talk with my opponents, and I'm going to add 20 seconds, maybe 10 seconds to the clock real quick because of my lagging. When I first talk to my opponents, I, I ask them to please reconsider doing this debate because I do think they will have to answer to God uh, in terms of the people being misled. And so I would ask again, I'm, I'm calling on you guys to, to cease from this, this doctrine and to, to, to search the scriptures again, I think you have, but so did the Pharisees. And so I love you guys, um, but this is really dangerous stuff. So anyways, thanks so much. Abortion is murder. Trust in Christ for salvation. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, guys, for that closing. All right, uh, Mr. Dominique and Bo, you guys are up for your five-minute closing. I start your time. You begin to speak. Awesome. Um, well, let's get through it. The first thing I want to say is sorry. I planned in the beginning that's not to make any smart aleck comments or laugh during the debate. And it's just something I do naturally. <laughs> so I have to remove that from my vocabulary. So I am sorry, Tony and Merrick for making comments like, go look it up on Google and I'll wait for you to, you know, I shouldn't have said that thing. And you are right that I, that was uncharitable to you guys. But moving on to the closing. Um, unfortunately, it, and it looks like this way, maybe they would disagree, but um, some of the audience might agree as well. It seems like our opponents have has abandoned the um, dispute resolution. The dispute resolution is, is the future eternally settled? They did bring up a lot of great points about God's knowledge and future knowledge, 
but never once was a single verse mentioned about everything being settled. They logist, I mean, uh, not logistically, but um, they brought up points about, hey, if um, he knows everything, then therefore he has to settle everything that way. That's not what the debate resolution is about. Second of all, um, they harped on narrative text. However, one of their proof texts for God knowing everything is John 21, 17, which Peter says, and he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And the question that is here is, is this is one of the proof texts for God knowing everything or Jesus knowing everything. Did Jesus know the day or the hour? And the Bible tells us he did not know the day or the hour. So words like knowing everything are not self-defined terms. Just because it says knowing everything in relation to God doesn't mean he has exhaustive foreknowledge. This is used as a proof text by them to demonstrate that Jesus and God know everything exhaustively. However, we know that Jesus does not know the day or the hour of his coming. And so words like knowing everything are applied to believers. In 1 John 2.20, it says that we will have all knowledge. That's not a self-defined term. In 1 John 3.20, it says that God has all knowledge or knows all things. That doesn't mean exhaustive foreknowledge. The Bible, they're saying words like knowing everything and applying the fact that, hey, it means he knows everything exhaustively. And what we need to be careful, Merrick says we need to be careful. I agree. Every doctrine that you look at, you should be very careful in examining the scriptures. However, let's all be very careful about saying words like knowing everything and applying things and extrapolating to God's word. We need to be very careful by extrapolating from God's word. When we are judged, like Merrick brings this up, when we are judged, are we going to be able to say, God, I told others about you and what you said about yourself? Merrick and Tony make an argument that God does not change his mind, but God himself tells us he changes his mind. What is there to be a judgment day for Tony and Merrick if God says, why were you teaching that I did not change my mind? Well, God, you were being anthropomorphic. Well, God, there was a figure of speech. And these things may not hold up. Maybe we're wrong. And I'm humble enough to go, hey, we're 24 and 23. We might be wrong. We're most likely wrong. We're all probably wrong. <laughs> but the thing is, let's all search the scriptures. Let's all seek God and be humble enough to go, I might be wrong. And in this situation, what is judgment day going to be when we say God is being figurative, God is being this. So I want to close and give the rest to Dominic of the time. I do want to rebut, you know, go back and say, I am so sorry. My whole plan of this was not to laugh. And I ended up doing it. So I am sorry. And I repent of that. Yeah. Then I would also like to just thank our opponents. And I know I get heated as well. So uh, I, I love you guys. And you guys are definitely awesome Christians. And I wouldn't want anyone to think else uh, otherwise. Um, but I, I do want to just address one thing. You guys asked, how do we, how could we trust God if he doesn't have uh, exhaustive knowledge of the future, if it's not all settled. And the Bible tells us explicitly, we love him because he loved us first. And God, he has a very long track record of being faithful. And that is why we can have faith in him because of his uh, track record. I do think uh, we had a lot that was not, um, I think we had a lot of uh, arguments that it was not shown uh, that they were eternally settled. 
like Moses pleading with God, like Saul no longer being king, uh, like Hezekiah, like Nineveh. Uh, we hear that there were a lot of contingencies, but again, I would argue that contingencies can only exist in a world that is uh, open in an unsettled future. If the future is settled, there is no possibility. Um, and even some of their own uh, proof texts, I think they disagreed with them. Like First Samuel 23, it says, the Lord says that uh, the people uh, will deliver uh, David's men and that the, uh, um, I forget the other example, but then immediately after, then that did not happen. And so even their own proof texts show that the future is unsettled. Um, and I believe I'm out of time. So thank you guys so much. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you both. All four of you guys so much for participating in this debate. And so now we're going to transition to the Q and a, we have a whole bunch of questions here, uh, waiting for you guys, uh, rules of Q and a each team get a minute and 30 seconds to respond. So you guys got to make sure your responses are quick. And right to the point. Uh, I usually do like two minutes, like one minute per person. That just drags it way too long. So make sure you get right to your response to these questions. All right, our first question is coming from Aaron Peakley with a super chat. Thank you so much for your support, Aaron. And it's gonna pop up. Sorry, Tony, your face is gonna get covered. Sorry about that. That's probably uh, a good thing. All right, no problem. It says, question for Merrick. In your rebuttal uh, to Jeremiah 18, you explained how the conditional outcomes were settled. Can you address how man's choices that bring about those settled outcomes are also settled? Yeah, so this is uh, kind of getting into the debate of something we said we won't talk about, but that's okay. That's It's a good question. So I come from the Calvinistic sort of persuasion. Some would say, let me turn my time around. Some would say like compatibilism. I don't really like that modernist language. I like what uh, Mueller refers to as sort of reformed orthodoxy. Um, the way I view the congruity between, okay, God's divine providence and human freedom. So I would distinguish, and I think there's biblical precedent for this between what I would call proximate and remote causes or like you know, fission cause it and all, all these different sorts of things. That's how I understand it philosophically. I'm not super interested in that question. And I think really my opponents aren't either. And that's what I appreciate and why I really wanted to do this debate is because these guys know their Bible. And, and that's why we really were able to focus on the text. Um, there are some good books on this uh, that speak to, you know, you know, four views of divine providence and human freedom. So I, I would take the Calvinist position. I used to be a Molinist. Uh, my friend here, Tony's a Lutheran. We kind of differ on how we view that. And I think even within the open theist camp, there's different views of libertarian free will and how that works with human autonomy and, and things like that. So it's a good question. All right. Uh, Tony, you have anything to say with the last 30 seconds of your time? Um, other than God would know what they would do. Um, so God can make statements based upon real things that he knows they could do contingently, but knows ultimately what they will do. So that's how I would answer it. Um, whether, whether, you know, Bo and Dominic think that makes me committed to some, you know, like Molinism or whatever, I don't really know, but, uh, that's probably what I would say. All right. All right. Bo also, I want to say sorry for getting heated in the debate as well, guys. It's natural. It's <laughs> natural. The natural man. 
All right, Bo and Dominic, you guys have a minute, 30 seconds to re respond. Bo, do you want to take that one? Is it directed towards us? Oh, we're responding. Okay. Um, Dominic, you want to do it? Um, no, I, I, uh, you, you go for it. So, okay, let's do it. Okay. So there, you know, I, Merrick said it was a good question. I think it is a really good question. I think we tried to, it, it's difficult in the cross-examination to hone in questions because especially because we're all on the internet, we're all, it's all, you know, it's not in person, but I would say it, it's a great question when it comes to, um, if things are conditional, but they're settled, I don't think that view um, can coincide. Calvinism is a system of absolutes. Open theism is not a system of absolutes. God can predetermine some things and not predetermine others. In Calvinism, if there's one rogue molecule, it fails. And so I think saying there's a contingency um, is maybe not what they're trying to say. I'll be charitable to them. I don't think they're trying to say there's a real contingency, unless they are. Um, but I think what, what, what I'm trying to convey or trying to understand is, do they think there's not a real contingency? He just says it is and there's never a contingency or if they they legitimately believe there is a contingency but it is settled that in my mind would be super contradictory and i think that's why you're asking the question to point out that contradiction if there's a contingency there cannot be any settled things from eternity past all right that is time there all right let's go on, on to our next question here and this question is for dominique and mr bow this come from Cameron. Thank you for the super chat. Cameron, appreciate it. Uh, how do you explain Romans chapter 8, verse 29? I'm going to pull it up, Dominic. Do you want to go first? Yeah. I'm going to pull this up here as well. Give me okay. half a second here. Um, I can, I can, you want to go, you go first. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, God, he, um, he knows that the, the people, he knows that Christians, uh, that he is going to predestine them to go to heaven. And so uh, there's the, the big debate over is this um, individuals or is this groups of people? And so I think that God foreknows the, uh, the destination of groups of people. He knows that the groups of people who are Christians will go to heaven and the groups of people who are not Christian will go to hell. And I heard a, a good analogy of this, which is that, say, with uh, predeterminism, you know that if there's an airplane, um, the, the destination of the airplane is already determined. The people on which individuals get on the airplane, that is not predetermined. Um, but um, the destination is determined. So everyone who gets on the plane, they're all going to Seattle. Uh, but it's not uh, pre and that's foreknown that everyone who gets on the plane is going to Seattle. Everyone, the individuals who are getting on the plane, that part is not uh, foreknown. Is there 30 seconds left? Uh, yeah, yeah, about 30 seconds left, Bo. Okay, Romans uh, 829 has nothing to do with eternally predestined or foreknown things. Actually, the verse is preceded by um, verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the spirit is, because he makes intercession for us. That's something that's happening as time goes on. And so I would argue that uh, foreknowledge doesn't mean from eternity past. For example, Acts 26 uh, verse five says, which he knew me from the beginning, if they would testify. That's talking about the Jews. What is the beginning? It's not the beginning of time. The Jews knew from the beginning. It's not foreknown from all eternity. That's as quick as I can get it done. <laughs> all right. 
All right, going on yep. to the uh, American Tony. You guys have a minute thirty seconds to chime in on his, on his question. Yep. So I, it it doesn't really work because um, the, the the language used is singular, and so I think very clearly, and most commentaries will agree with this. And again, we can debate your scholars versus my scholars, but the language like clearly implies that God is actively bringing them into the plane. I think that can be very clearly proven exegetically. Maybe that's what our next debate is, but God is acting in time, carrying out his will to predestinate individuals. And again, that's how I read the text. Um, I remember, you know, Ephesians has tons of similar language. Uh, Tony, you have anything to say on this? Yeah, so I, I connect this statement to Ephesians because it's so similar, the, the notion of predestining. And the language about predestining is tied to before the foundation of the world in Ephesians 1. And the language is similar, those whom, whom he foreknew, he predestined. So this foreknowledge is not something gained in time. Uh, this is something that is before the... Well, Tony been cutting out this whole debate. Foundation of the world. I'll finish his sentence. <laughs> yeah, there but you yeah, go. Like, so, <laughs> yeah, so the, the idea is, on your view, I guess, God, before the foundation of the world, wouldn't have even known that there would be sinners to, to redeem, right? So it doesn't really work. I guess I got cut out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> for the, for, I finished for like, your sentence, brother. For, for like the hundredth time, uh, Tony. I know. I'm sorry, Marlon. <laughs> no, you're good, I buddy. Nah, no, I'm messing with you, man. We all have these issues, man. It's all good, man. All right, so that is time right there. So we're going to move on to the next question here. All right, we have another super chat here coming from Mr. Will Duffy. Uh, everybody should know about Mr. Will Duffy. Thank you for the super chat, Will. Bring this question up. This is for obviously for Merrick. Uh,. I guess nobody want to talk to you, Tony. I don't know what's going on. They just asking Merrick, but you know, shit team. <laughs> says um, quite from Merrick. The one out of us, so it makes sense. <laughs> so I did not hear the opening statement. Yeah, so the question is: I did not hear an argument that the future is eternally settled. If the future was eternally settled, that would mean God was not free to decree a different future. Is that your position? Um. I'll, I'll give this over to Tony in a minute because he wrote the opening and has some context to that specific wording. Um, I would say, no, absolutely not. That would be like necessitarianism, and that would be very problematic. I, you know, we, ho I, we hold to that God freely decreed this world. So he could have decreed a world with one less, you know, ring light in existence or, or something like that. It, it was free. Again, well, good to see you. Good to see your interactions on the campus in Wichita and, and good to get to know you a little bit. Yeah, there could have been some ambiguity in our understanding of the the term, the future is eternally settled. For us, we would say from God's eternal state, right, knowing the world he, you know, would create, so to speak. This world is, he knows everything that will occur in this world. So that's what we kind of meant to, by being eternally settled. God knows what will occur in the world he actualizes. So. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess we're going to find out now, Bo, if you went mute or not. Um, if not, um, you can go ahead and speak now, Bo, and see if you went mute. Yeah, I think you went out again. Go ahead, log back in, log out, come back. And yeah, uh, it's so, like Moses, God made, made his lips, right? <laughs> <It's> not, uh... <laughs> so, uh, Dominique, uh, you can chime in on that question. 
Sure. Yeah. So just being charitable, I would say the closest I think that they came to giving a verse that shows the future is eternally settled and was from eternity past was probably Isaiah 46.10 declaring the end from the beginning. I think that was probably their strongest point. Uh, yet even with that, um, we saw there are new declarations which are being brought about all the time. And as uh, Bo was pointing out, in is that um, these are about specific time periods. So how do we know that God is going to do something? Um, well, because he says he's going to do it and then he causes it to happen. And so that's not something saying from the beginning of time, uh, he, he declared everything that all the way through to the end of time. It's just before something happens, I'm going to declare it. That way, you know, it wasn't me. That way, uh, these false idols, they know it wasn't them. They don't get the credit for it, but I get the credit for it as, uh, as God. All right. That was good. We can, leave, we can leave it at that. We got 30 seconds left, but I like what he said. All right. Great. Going on to the next question here. We have another super chat from Aaron again, Aaron Pinkley. A pil Pilkey? I don't miss, mess up your name, man. Sorry about that. All right, so we have another super chat, and this is for Tony. Oh, Tony, this is for you, man. Thank uh -oh. you so much for the super chat. All right, anthropomorphism is defined as the attribution of human characteristics or behavior to God. It doesn't mean the attributes are not true about God. Can you show how they're not true, please? Um, yeah, so anthropomorphism, we use this in other categories of human speech too. It's like when we talk about a clock telling us the time, clock does not have the attribute of telling us anything, right? So we do use human-like characteristics of things even in our own natural world and experience all the time. So when we're talking about God using human-like metaphorical language to explain them, we have to explain them, th we have to understand them through uh, analogies in a way. God even will describe himself as having wings sometimes. He will describe himself as having hands, feet, ears, uh, things like this, but we don't actually believe he actually has those things as to his nature. So when yeah, so with this language of anthropomorphism, when he talks about changing his mind, he is producing effects into the world, right? Where from our interpretation, it looks like effects that someone who changes their mind would produce. That's how we interpret that. Or when God says he holds the clouds with his hand, that would be similar to a person holding up something with their hand, but he doesn't actually have a hand, so... Yeah, with, with 20 seconds, I would, you know, say in regards to anthropopathicism and anthropomorphisms, I'd say, you know, they're, they're referential and they necessarily entail analogy. And so it, I would view them in terms of some theologians said like a, a sketch of implicit likeness or unlikeness, drawing out that that creature, creature, creator distinction. And I, I think that open theism's referential fallacy, it sort of inverts the analogy in regards to like God's self closure disclosure if if that makes sense it's kind of complicated i'm running out of time but i i think there's some issues hermeneutically i'll just put it that and they'd probably revert that to us so all right dominique and uh bo you got a what are your thoughts great yeah so just one quick thought like thinking about uh that genesis 6 passage i'll read that here quickly so the lord said i would destroy man whom i've created 
uh, from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made man. They were saying that this is an anthropomorphism in that it's like when God, he changes his mind. It's like it changes his heart. He doesn't actually have a heart. I would like to just point out that in this passage, it doesn't actually say God changed his mind. It's not using a physical term to describe God. It's just he said, I'm sorry that I have made man. And so that's all I have to throw on that point. Oh, I don't know if you have. Yeah, more. when it comes to, uh, yeah, I can add a little bit. Um, I have a text here. It says it's from Coleman Boyd to Merrick. He says, "Tell him I love the Ernie Yarbrough hat." So yes, he the hat. No, uh, I've been wearing this hat <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Also, I have twenty. Yeah, thirty seconds. But um, anthropomorphism is defined as a. I, I think there are anthropomorphisms, like God has hands and God has feet. I think those are anthropomorphic. But there are certain times God is speaking. A lot of these anthropomorphisms about God's hand and this—they're used in the Psalms and they're used in poetry to describe things about God. And they also, in those same texts, will say things like mountains are dancing. When God's telling us, "I change my mind," it's a little bit different than, "Hey, uh, David," saying. Uh, he holds the clouds with his hands or the mountains are dancing. It's a little bit different when God says, I change my mind or I repent. All right. All right. We have another super chat here. Let's come from Jeremiah. Thank you. Well, that's the verse. I don't know the guy's actual name, but he has Jeremiah 18, 17. Thank you. 17 through two through 10. If I can get that out. Right. Uh, thank you for the super chat. Appreciate it. This question is from American Tony. Is your argument God gives a condition for when he changes his mind? Therefore, God doesn't change his mind. Yeah, literally speaking, he, he doesn't actually have a change of affairs in his internal state because he is saying he's going with an intention on the basis of what uh, a condition being fulfilled, uh, like a condition in the external occurs. Like when Merrick was saying the changes in the person's not in the, in the intention of the person who stated, you know, I will do this on this basis or that basis, the changes in the person who meets a condition, not in the, in, in God, basically. So there is no literal actual change of internal state occurring when God uses that language from our perspective. Yeah, and I don't I don't have much much to add. I'm getting really tired tired. I was up really early. I, I would just in regards to the, the conditionals and changing mind, I mean some thought provokers is like, how do we know God won't change his mind about resurrecting our bodies, right? Um in terms in terms of certainty. Um now that opens a whole can of worms. But you know, I think I think the conditional point, it's really interesting because we have a text in Jeremiah and many of the prophets where like we're both really familiar with it. And we both think it argues our point. So, so maybe, maybe there could be some some sort of book written, like going back and forth, just on those. I'd love to see that laid out. But really good discussion of those texts, and I'm, I'm glad we're getting into them. But yeah, we view not as you know. I, I think the in my thinking, the the conditional argument just knocks out the the open theist argument because it just seems clearly okay. There's a condition, and then that that condition is met, and then God does what He said He would All right. do. All right, that's time right there. All right, uh, Bo and Dominique, uh, you have any thoughts? Awesome. Yeah, I just want so, to start. Um, uh, go, go ahead, Bo. I took a last You go time. first. You go first. You go first. Okay, I'll take Okay, it. sure. Okay, so God gives a condition for when he changes his mind. The condition in it, I know it's uh, the condition in itself, we believe, implies that there is no, uh, nothing can be settled, or that event could not have been settled. Not every event has a condition. Uh, not Jesus going to the cross. That's not a condition. It's going to happen. God's going to do it. He's going to make it happen. 
even if uh, Jesus hints at the fact that he could have done something, he says, no, but I will do this. So not everything has a condition. And the fact that there's some events that do have conditions relate to us that certain events are not settled. If there's a condition, it's not settled. Yeah, then I was just going to throw on the end of that, that, uh, again, in the text, it says, God, he says, I will not do that, which I thought I would do. So this is something internal to God. So it is true that the people, they are changing, but God is also changing himself. And he says, I will not do that, which I thought I would do. This is giving us a sneak peek inside of his, uh, his brain. Um, and so, again, that underlying principle, that does stay the same. This is how God will change his mind. This is how God will change the future. But the stuff on top of that underlying principle, that does change. All right. All right. Moving on to the next question here. We have another super chat coming from Cameron again. Thank you, Cameron, for the super chat. Question for Open Theist. Theism, uh, open theist. Do you do you? How do you distinguish between anthropomorphic language and non-anthropomorphic language? Yeah, I think it just comes down to um, interpreting the text as to what's going on. If God tells me He doesn't, He has an arm, and we know He doesn't have an arm, that could be implied as anthropomorphic. When God tells me He repents, and then He does something opposite to what He's done, and He's actually making a change in action. Um, that could be declared as non-anthropomorphic. For example, God says, I will destroy them. I intend, to, <laughs> I intended to destroy them. However, then he turns around and doesn't do it. That's not anthropomorphic. God is telling us directly what he's going to do, what his plan and what his intention is. But specifically Genesis 6, I repent. That is not anthropomorphic. Similar to me, if I'm baking a cake again, and I change my mind and throw it away, did I actually change my mind? Yes, it's not a figure of speech. God says, I repent that I made man, destroys every man except for eight of them. Um, actually, the real context is I, in 120 years, no more will I do with man. And then later he finds Moses and allows Moses to stay. But in reality, what he's saying is, is I repent and he destroys every man. Yeah. And I would say that figures of speech, just generally speaking, are pretty easy to understand as figures of speech. I think they're pretty intuitive. I definitely think if God says something and then he takes an action to follow it up, you can't say, oh, what he said was a figure of speech and he didn't mean it because he took an action to follow that up. Um, but that said, uh, other figures of speech, right? I could eat a horse. It's very intuitive. And I might not have a great hermeneutic to decide if something is a figure of speech or not. And maybe that's something I could work on. But definitely to me, it seems somewhat intuitive. All right. Uh, American Tony, got any thoughts? You can go first. Yeah. So like when, when God goes to create the world, he says, let there be light. Based on their answer, if they follow up with an action then it suggests something that maybe we should think God has an actual mouth, you know, because he's following up with an action of people who have mouths or something, but, uh, or he sees, you know, our hearts. And so therefore we should think he has eyes. Um, but I, I don't think any of those things necessarily follow. And the point we would make why we interpret the human body part language as anthropomorphic is because there's statements in scripture which say he's not a man and he is a spirit and no one has seen God. He's invisible. So there's these didactic and negative passages which give context to that. And for the change of mind passages, we're told that God is not like a man that he should change his mind and not just numbers, but also in First Samuel yeah. 15. Um, and... So that gives us precedent to realize that when God 
as using language of change of mind, it's not in the same way as a human conception of what that means. Yeah, and in 20 seconds, I would say there's also something in terms of like um, where the, the natural knowledge of God comes in and sort of proves his immutability and a sadie. That's an entire different debate, but this is just helping understand our position better. And it helps prove that those things are figures, right? So we, we know the nature of mountains. So we understand mountains clapping. And so just given what God is, we interpret that the anthropomorphisms in light of his nature. So it's just an, another extra layer. All right. And here is another super chat here from Mr. Where we at? Oh, right here it is. All right, from Rachel. Sorry, I didn't mean to say Mr. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for the super chat. Appreciate it. This is for both. Uh, thank you for your abolitionist work. Uh, question of all the major and minor prophets that God sent, only Jonah's audience repented. Why did God send the other prophets if the people could not have repented? So I, I think the question is like, could not have in terms of like the, maybe the Calvinistic understanding of total depravity, which I, I don't really, really want to go into, but I, you know, I, I would just say, you know, God's word's not going to return void. It, we see sort of the dual purposes of of God's word going out, and not not just in redemption, but also in judgment. So we don't just have this one dimensional view of uh, of things to where God's word is only unto salvation; it's also unto un, unto condemnation and, and judgment. Um, really good message by a brother Alan Maracle, who who spoke on this recently in terms of the the expansiveness of God's word in the prophetic call that you give, not just to repentance, but also to, you know, the, the law of God and things like that. I don't, I don't know if that helps. All right. Yeah. I, I guess I don't have too much to add about that. Honestly. Um, I guess I was a little bit confused about the question myself personally, but yeah. Okay. All right, Bo and Dominique, any thoughts? Dominic, you first. Yeah, I would just say I think that they could have repented. I think that it's true that God's word does not uh, will not return void. And I think that there is yeah. power in uh, in these preachings, and that these people could have repented. And God, He genuinely wanted them to repent, and God wants the world to uh, repent. And so I do think they were capable of repentance and uh, sadly they did not but we do get a cool story here with uh, Jonah and Nineveh where there was revival I do think as uh, you know street preachers ourselves that gives us a little bit of encouragement that we can keep uh, street preaching and there might be a revival here in America so uh, that'd be awesome yeah in my time I think uh, we've they've covered this but um, yeah no I, I truly believe God desires all men to repent and why he sent those people out there to speak is that he desired them to repent. There's some of the, in the prophets, it's in the major prophets. Um, I, I can't list you an exact verse. And this is where I, I don't want to really use this example, but there's times in which God says, repent so that I don't have to repent so that I could change my mind. In Jeremiah 26, I didn't specifically mention this one, this verse, but in that chapter, you could see God saying that I may relent. And God is sending Jeremiah to do it so that he may relent. And I think it's very similar to the minor prophets. God wanted them to change their mind and repent, just like he wanted Nineveh to as well. All right. We have another super chat here. Thank you for the super chat, Scott. Appreciate it. Next question for Tony and Merrick. 
I'll be guilty of a sin if I force someone to sin and they had no way out to be logically consistent. God is responsible if he decreed we would sin and we have no choice but to do his decree. How do you reconcile this? I would just say, thank goodness that he does provide a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, that which is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not tempt you more than you can bear, but he will provide you a way of escape or a way, way to endure it. Um, I believe that. Now, you can argue perhaps that's not consistent with my Calvinism. Let's debate that. Tony, I mean, you, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess... Like, my understanding of what it means for God to decrease in is, like, not really... I don't know. I'm not going to get into the debate of, like, distinctives of, like, me yeah. or a Calvinist position on that topic. I would just yeah, I mean, say that the, God yeah. God creating a world in which he knows sin would occur, like, doesn't make God culpable of sin. Okay? Yeah. I or mean, that Th he causes Thomas Austin... Go ahead. He, he gives the analogy of, okay, the sun's rays shining on a pile of poop. That's that's the way I view God's culpability. Like, he's so farly. And I, we didn't talk about, like, Leviticus 21 through 5. It never did enter in my mind. He's just so morally morally removed from that. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, yeah. not hyper-Calvinist. Yeah, and I would just say that uh, for the open theists, how do they account for God knowing future, free, uh, future acts of sin? Uh, I guess they would have to think he predetermines it. So we'll see what they say about that. All right, uh, Bo and Dominique, what are your thoughts on that question? Yeah, on that question specifically, um, I think it's a difficult one for Calvinists to answer if they're staying consistent. Like, for example, if God decrees everything that'll happen, but I somehow have a free will. I mean, some Calvinists say we have a free will, some don't. You know, we've covered this. Um, if there is no free will, I technically have to do everything that God has decreed. I usually don't use arguments like this in debates um, because I think there's, I mean, I, it's a great question. And I think it's something that Calvinists need to address. Um, but I don't think it's something that a lot of Calvinists will answer. They're not going to answer, you know, <laughs> that question the way that you would want them to answer. Um, it's just not going to happen. Dominic? Sure. Yeah. So if I am a criminal and I put my hand on someone else's finger and I force them to pull a trigger and that shoots and kills somebody, that would be me who's guilty, not the person who I, uh, I did that to. And likewise, with God, we see uh, from the Calvinistic perspective that he has a decree that people are going to sin and the way that he decreed them to sin. There's no maverick molecules. Even the atoms which make up their muscles are causing them to sin exactly how God like decree that they would sin from eternity past. And I think that does put guilt on God. And I think that is the logical conclusion of that. It, it does not look good for God. And I would, uh, I would encourage Christians to stay away from uh, saying that God decreed sin. All right. We have about five minutes left in the uh, Q and in the Q and a here. So we're going to try to jam these questions in here. Uh, I have another question from Cameron. No, not that one. I think it's this one right here. Uh, from Cameron, thank you for the question. It says, can you, uh, and this question is, I guess it doesn't say who it's to. I think it's like a priori maybe? Yeah, it says, can you ever use a a fortiori? A fortiori, yeah. A fortiori, oh. I'll pronounce that the best way I can. Y'all deal with it <laughs> later. Reasoning in theology. I think Merrick used uh, uh, CCFs to argue that if God knows this great thing, he must know the lesser. 
Yeah, so he's referring to counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. I'll try to be really quick here, and I hope that our opponents will also be just so we can get to more questions. And so, like, I would just say that we apply this reasoning all the time. Um, if God has knowledge of something, like, that's not even suppositionally settled, how much more so does he have knowledge of something that he willed to be the case? And so it's kind of going from from uh, the, the greater to the lesser, lesser to the greater, um, which I think kind of combats the argument, uh, you know, the analogy, the red cards and the blue cards seriously that um, our, our opponents put forth. Um, so going from the greater uh, to, to the lesser, um, again, a, a little philosophical, but I think really important in, in terms of how we understand these arguments. Yeah. Yeah. It just touches based on our opening statement where we made the argument that since God knows what people could do in any hypothetical scenario, therefore he knows what they will do in any given scenario. So, All right. Uh, Bo and Dominique, what are your thoughts? I don't think I fully understand the question, so I'm going yeah. to pass on this. I'm going to pass as well. Um, I, I'll tell you one thing. I tend to, um, in order to stay in the clear, I tend to not extrapolate on things. I try my best not to. I hope in this debate we tried not our best not to extrapolate. So in terms of reasoning, going, this says this, and this must mean this. If God doesn't say it directly, I try my best not to say it about God himself. If he's not attributing something to himself, I'm not going to go that's what it means so in terms of god you know saying things like uh um I, I changed my mind i would agree with that i mean we have different interpretations of it but we have to agree god does say i changed my mind so therefore it would be one or the other it's not like i'm making it up and going oh god you know you know whatever anyways i i tend not to get into reasoning as much as i can in theology all right and here is another super chat here this come from Aaron again. Thank you, Aaron, for the support. This question is from Eric. If God changing his mind is an I think that I, no, I don't think I read this. If God changing his mind is anthropomorphism of a human characteristic that God does not have, then what is it supposed to reveal to us about God that we wouldn't know otherwise? Yeah, good question. I mean, it reveals lots of things. And so I, I understand the, the point you're trying to make in terms of, well, he's not, not a human, right? Well, okay, so Exodus 15, the horse and rider been thrown to the sea, Miriam, Moses, God, mighty God, a man of war. Well, what, what does that denote, guys? Well, we know the context of that. He just threw the Egyptians into the sea, thrown them, right? Um, so it, it helps us understand what was his intention behind that, okay? Uh, utter, utter destruction. And so I would say God does have those sorts of human attributes in his action, but not in his nature. That's the distinction I would make. And now we can get into, okay, Christ, um, you know, on earth and our Christology and, and his, you know, his, his wills and his human divine nature. So I would say, you know, he, he genuinely is acting like a human in these sense. But again, the, the key distinction is in terms of his actions and not his nature. Yes, I do believe in divine simplicity, but in the words of the scholastics, we distinguish. So that's my best way to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have too much to add to that other than like positing God holds the universe in his hands or something doesn't actually technically reveal too much more about what else might be said in scripture uh, other than that he is intimately related to his creation. So when it talks about God changing his mind, it means that he hates sin so much that he's producing effects that are akin to human like behavior. So. All right, uh, Bo and Dominique. 
Sure, I'll start. I'll just say one thing quickly, uh, which is that I've noticed in these debates, it seems that whenever we hear anthropomorphism, the, the figure of speech, uh, and it's asked, what does this figure of speech mean? It always, uh, the answer is always the opposite of whatever it says. So in Genesis 6, God repented, or he, sorry, he, he was sorry that he made man. What does that mean? Well, that means he was not sorry that he made man. And uh, to me, a figure of speech, you have to be, if you're going to say, this is a figure of speech, you have to say, okay, here's the meaning behind it. Here's what it means. So I could eat a horse means I'm really hungry, but God was sorry that he made man. That does not mean he was not sorry that he made man. So Bo, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, I think the anthropomorphism stuff, I there are anthropomorphics in the Bible. And, and like we've covered, they're usually in the poetic passages and they're usually paired with other poetic things like the mountains dancing, he holds the cloud. And it's things that, you know, we can make a meaning. He holds the cloud. Okay, great. He can control the weather. I changed my mind. What does a figure of speech mean? He doesn't change his mind. That's just absurd to me to make that. It, anthropomorphism should clarify the scripture. He holds the clouds. He controls the weather. I changed my mind. That doesn't mean he changes his mind. That just doesn't make sense to me. And that's why we, we wanted to prod at those kind of things. All right. And we have a couple more super chats here. And then we'll think we're going to be right at the cutoff here. Mm -hmm. All right. And this question from Jeremiah again. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the super chat. Appreciate it. Question from America. Tony, is your argument God gives a condition for when he changes his mind? Therefore, God, I think I already read that one, didn't I? I think we read this one. Yeah, yeah. I think we got that one already. Yeah. So on to the next one. Let me, uh, on to the next one here. Uh, and I think this is from Cameron again. If I read this one already, yeah. It looks like I already read that one, actually. So I guess the final question here will be for Merrick here. I think we're going to shut this thing down. Merrick, how do I get a mustache to look like that? <laughs> so so, so it, it's an interesting question. There's basically three schools of thought here. No, it's kind of weird because this part, it's like turning red. And I also, I always thought it was weird that people had red hair. I was like, that's just weird. And then it started growing a little bit red. I don't know. You know, I, I'm 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 rocking with it. So yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts by anybody else of how to grow a mustache like Merrick's? Yeah, my mustache sucks. So I <laughs> do need to know how to grow like Merrick. <laughs> cool, cool. Also, guys. Jeremiah, tell us you need to send a super chat how to get your beard, man. Yeah, what are you talking about? You got this massive beard. I can't do that yet. <laughs> Yeah, we, we need the Calvinists to come in and teach us how to grow those big beards because they always have the, yeah. the big, when big I, beards. When I repented of my Calvinism, I cut my beard off. You should see pictures. <laughs> it was long. It was a goat beard. It yeah, wasn't Bo cool, can do it. but it was definitely a goat beard. <laughs> nice. All right. Good stuff, guys. Excellent debate. Awesome Q&A. So I thank you guys for coming on, man. And uh, I know this, has been, this is a bit of a long one here. So I thank you for holding out through the technical difficulties and just fatigue. So uh, do you guys have any uh, other words before I let you guys go? I'm just so thankful hey, for all you guys. Iron sharpens iron. I learned a ton from doing this. And so I'm very thankful for my brothers yeah, in Christ. Yeah, here. absolutely. De yeah, definitely likewise. looking back on this grateful. So the Lord reigns. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank, thank you guys. For the, thank you for the opportunity. I'll tell you, all yeah, of thanks, us Marlon. under 25, 
the expectation wasn't that we're going to bring up something new, but I will tell you out of the people in this room, there's a bunch of street preachers and a lot of the gospel has gone forth through the, the multiple people in this room. And I will tell you, it's amazing to be in a debate with other 25 and under people that have done so much for the Lord. So I'm glad to be a part of it with good people that actually love the Lord. Praise God. All right. Yeah, I'm super senior here. I am the most senior individual here. I am 42. <laughs> I know I don't look it, man. I know I don't look 42, man. You know. But I am 42 years old, Black man. Black don't crack. Black do not crack. Black do not crack. Black that is a fact, Derek. <laughs> All right, guys, good stuff. I'm going to let you guys go. You guys go ahead and get some rest, and uh, hopefully we can get together again. Maybe another topic sometime, all right? You guys take care. God bless, all right? Yep, thanks, man. Thank you. All right. All right, another great debate, guys. Another fun one. Uh, like I said, uh, some others a long time ago, the debates in, with Calvinists and open theists and Lutherans and open theists are always enjoyable. These are always fun debates, and I always learn something new from these debates. And I pray out that you guys out there learn something new from the debate as well. I know there's a lot of questions out there uh, that I couldn't get to, uh, but the Super Chats killed today. And as I always say, the Super Chats are definitely welcomed and it's always appreciated uh, because the Super Chats help to sustain the ministry. There are bills, believe it or not, that we do pay. And uh, the Super Chats do help sustain those bills. And I appreciate uh, you guys being able to support the ministry through the super chat. And so um, I just want to actually ask, also put out there that um, there are a lot of shows coming up here. Uh, we have a big show that is coming up here on Monday. Yeah, I believe it's Monday. And that's going to feature Anthony Rogers and Seraphim, Seraphim Hamilton. And they're going to be debating faith alone. Uh, does scripture teach sola fide or faith alone, right? And so we are going to be debating that. And I'm looking forward to that one. Um, as you know, Anthony Rogers was originally tapped to debate William Arbridge. But for whatever reason, uh, that debate did not come through. So Seraphim Hamilton uh has been wanting to debate anthony for quite some time and so sarah from stepped in and decided to give it a go and so i'm excited for this debate to come up and i hope that you are as well and so uh the only way you can see it and make sure you don't miss it live is by making sure that you subscribe to the gospel truth all right make sure you hit the subscribe button and that notification bell so you don't miss out on any shows that are coming up here in the future like i said at the beginning of the show if you follow the gospel truth on facebook you notice that i've been posting a lot of thumbnails for a bunch of debates that are coming up here in the future so make sure that you are hitting that subscribe button and that notification bell so you don't miss out on any of those debates all right because you don't want to miss out on any of them but with that said i'm going to get out of here i appreciate all your support and i appreciate all you guys showing up every time we have a debate and i look forward to doing it again next time you guys take care and may god bless you